When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. And to those of you who are not yet my friends, a special welcome to you. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And we're here just to study some scripture together. It's been a real privilege for me to be able to spend time in, in words that I love with people that I'm coming to love. The more that I, that I hear from you and, and get to know you, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be a part of scripture study. And today we have some amazing scriptures to discuss. Section 64, 65, and 66. I'm actually going to take them out of order. I'm going to switch around the, the second and third because section 65 to me is just such a beautiful little oh, grand finale for the things we'll be discussing today. Uh, section 64 is, is a key text for especially what's going on as the saints are, are returning from Missouri to go back to Ohio and, and spend the next five or six years there uh, and kind of be caught between these two places. Uh, actually, there's to help set up section 64, I need to, to reiterate what many of you who've been with me know as my favorite quote from Joseph Smith, that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Now, that can be confusing. Uh, contraries is a word that we don't use very often. We, we're more used to the word paradox. And a paradox, or a contrary, is kind of two things that are supposed, to, well, that aren't supposed to go together, but they, you kind of force them to. And what makes the paradox is that how can these two things coexist? And, and yet they do. Now, we're not talking about uh, opposition in all things the way I described it. When he talked about opposition, he meant good versus evil. Uh, you have to know the, the in order to appreciate the sweet and so on. It, the contraries are similar to that, but instead of it being good and evil, light and darkness, it's good A coupled with good B. So both sides are positive, and that's important to understand. You see, any virtue, when taken to an extreme, becomes a vice. And so what you need to help it from doing that is a complementary virtue, a contrary, that keeps this one in check, and vice versa. The one we're most used to, and the one we'll spend some time talking about today, is justice and mercy. And you see, if justice is a virtue, but if it becomes too extreme to become harsh and judgmental and so unbending, that's Javert in Les Miserables, then that virtue has now become a vice. So what does it need? Well, it needs to be tempered, balanced with mercy. Now, can mercy become a vice if it becomes too merciful? Yeah, C.S. Lewis had some great statements about mercy becoming unmerciful when it's detached from its opposite, namely justice. It becomes overly permissive. It becomes uh, enabling and lackadaisical. That's why Jesus did such an incredible thing when he told the woman taken in adultery, neither do I condemn thee, there's mercy speaking, but go and sin, since that's what you did, no more. There's the justice speaking. And so much of life is kind of bouncing back and forth between those two positive poles that help define any given principle. That's why I call it the Goldilocks zone. I'm neither too hot at one extreme nor too cold at the other. I'm right in the middle where I need to be. 
and I stay in the middle, not by eliminating the, to, the two extremes, but by coupling them, holding them both together. The more I've studied this, and I've been, I've been chewing on this topic for years. Someday I'd love to put it all down in one place. But I've been amazed, once you have an eye to see it, they start jumping out all over the place in Scripture. Justice and mercy is an obvious one, but faith and works, or speaking the truth in love, or unity and diversity, or community or individuality, the, uh, institutional revelation versus individual revelation, agency and inspiration, male and female. There are so many of these, and it's, it's key for us to be able to grapple with the contraries, prove them, force them, uh, keep them together in this kind of active tension that allows us to maintain balance in our discipleship. And the beauty of having things on, on both sides, two positives that are pulling us in both directions is the fact that you can move kind of laterally in either direction depending on where you happen to be at a given moment in your life. You see, that's what makes discipleship tricky is that we are moving targets and culture is constantly shifting and, and it's like the river currents that we were talking about last week. That's one of those dangers upon the waters that we, that we hinted at, that currents are constantly shifting. The waves and the winds that tend to blow us off course. And in fact, if you think about a ship analogy, when the winds and the waves or the cultural currents are, are pu pushing us to starboard, then what do you end up doing? You get as many people as you can to lean towards the port. It's always amazing to me to see pictures of those that are kind of hanging off the edge of a boat. And what are they trying to do in their extremity? Well, keep the ship from falling off in the opposite extreme. Now, you don't want to overcorrect, because as soon as the ship starts to list to, to port, then you've got to start leaning towards the starboard. But, but that's the beauty of contraries. Am I being too permissive in my parenting, for example? Well, then I need to take a step in the direction of justice. But if I'm too harsh a disciplinarian, then I need to take a step, or two or three, in the direction of mercy all in hopes of ultimately gaining that perfect balance that Jesus always achieved. He's the best example you could ask for of someone who was constantly proving contraries. In fact, I've mentioned this before, the cross to me is such a perfect example of that because there is a vertical that is attached to a horizontal. There is a paradox. Am I, am I supposed to look up or, or reach out? And the answer is yes. You're supposed to do both. First great commandment, vertical, love God. Second great commandment, horizontal, love your neighbor. In fact, one of my favorite Christian writers is G.K. Chesterton. He was kind of the C.S. Lewis of his day, a generation before C.S. Lewis. He had been an atheist. He reconverted to Catholicism and became a great Christian apologist, trying to help other people understand the power of, of the Christian faith. And he talked at length about contraries. He didn't use that word. At one point, he called them furious opposites. Uh, that Christianity did an incredible job of maintaining and maintaining their oppositionality as well as their ferocity, both the lion and the lamb living together. And he pointed out that about the cross as well, that the cross itself, that the, the, the crux of Christianity, there is a collision and a contradiction. And Christianity allows us to embrace those positive contradictions in life and move in either direction depending on, on which extreme we happen to be uh, moving towards. It's constant course correction. And the constancy of that course correction is kind of what I wanted to bring up to set the stage of section 64. Because if you remember, what, two weeks ago, section 60, 61, and 62, there was so much mercy breathing through those revelations. I am able to make you holy 
and your sins are forgiven you. I am merciful and forgive sins to those who confess them before me. I understand the, or I know the weakness of man and how to succor you according to your temptations. Every one of those three revelations was mercy, mer pulling the ship towards mercy. And that was important because what was going on? The saints had come down on the, this mission to Missouri and, and seen Zion, but some were looking at it only through the natural eye and for the present time. And, and there was struggles, there was problems. The, on, the, on the journey back, there's friction upon the water. It's not just the destroyer that W.W. Phelps sees, but he recognizes, and they all do, the effect of the destroyer upon themselves as they're arguing and, and, and having some struggle within themselves. There was even friction in Missouri on the level of the prophet, Joseph Smith, and the bishop, Edward Partridge, not seeing eye to eye. And, and there was some real misunderstanding there and some, some ill will in a way. Bishop Partridge had been tasked with the temporal affairs of the church and, and all this uh, consecrated money is going down to Missouri to purchase lands. And then Joseph comes down to check on things and, and they don't see eye to eye on the kind of land that is being purchased. Uh, it, interesting things that are going on and, and the difficulties that take place among them. Then by the time Joseph Smith and the others ret uh, return to Kirtland, I mean, half the church is, is apostatizing. There's, the, you know, the, the without the supervision and the, and the direction of things, these are fairly recent converts themselves. And, and so there's a lot of opposition when they get back home. And so thank heaven, section, section 60, 61, and 62 is so merciful because the, the, the saints are going to need that reassurance. But lest the good ship Zion list too far to starboard, section 63 comes along to start leaning towards port. And that was to remind them of justice. And they are called to repentance in section 63. That was last week's lesson. And, and I hope you sense the justice coming through loud and clear. Like I said last week, you kind of have to know which, which audience you're on, which extreme do, do you happen to be on, and know, is the mercy message the one I need to hear? or the one I'm already hearing too loudly and I need to turn up the volume on, on the justice side of things. I mean, we, we want to surround sound on this, okay? We need, we need both justice and mercy sounding equally in our ears. We need both eyes open to be able to see real depth perception of where the Lord wants us to be. And that's what I love about section 64. Because if 60, 61 and 62 lean us in the direction of mercy, and 63 brings us back towards justice, 64, you see, you see the Lord still trying to help us find the Goldilocks zone in the middle. The, one of the main focus points of section 64 is forgiveness, which is an amazing combination of justice and mercy itself. We are able to be forgiven because of God's mercy, but we need to be forgiven because God is just. And, and so to see the balancing act the Lord is trying to do. In fact, I've seen this throughout history that when society or culture or civilization itself is too far on one extreme, history has a way of correcting itself. But unfortunately, it has a way of overcorrecting itself. During the Enlightenment period, when, when it was too much head, the Romantic period overcorrected to say, well, now it's all about heart. And are we going to find the middle? When monarchy started to lean towards tyranny, and the American Revolution said, we got to fix that. Well, the French Revolution kind of over-fixed that and needed to be pulled back in. In its zeal to avoid tyranny, it fell off the other edge towards anarchy. I mean, this is Scylla and Charybdis in, in Homer's Odyssey. The too far in one direction, and I get, I get eaten by, by the, the monster. And, but too far in the other, and my ship goes down in the whirlpool. I have to find celestial center. I have to be able to learn to balance and ask any gymnast what that takes 
incredible core strength. And that is what the Lord is trying to develop within us all. Like I said, that will take constant course correction. So 60 to 62, mercy, 63, justice, 64, forgiveness. We're trying to balance the two. We're trying to, to limit the, how far the pendulum is swinging as we correct and overcorrect. We're trying to find a middle ground. In fact, one of my favorite statements along this line, these lines is again from G.K. Chesterton, who said this, Religion is sometimes only a matter of an inch, but an inch is everything when you are balancing. And that's what we're after. The church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things if she was to continue her great and daring experiment of the irregular equilibrium. Once let one idea become less powerful, and some other idea would become too powerful. It was no flock of sheep the Christian shepherd was leading, but a herd of bulls and tigers, of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines, each one of them strong enough to turn to a false religion and lay waste the world. I love that. No wonder the restored church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does so much to try to balance the contrary pulls that are out there. Honestly, in all my study of other religions, and I try to say this humbly, but I've never seen another that does quite the same job of balancing those furious opposites, those opposite positives. The pulls of the positives of Catholicism and Protestantism Combine the two and you have the restored gospel. The, the genius behind Judaism and Christianity, combine the two. There's, there's Mormonism as, as formerly called. Calvinism and Arminianism, hierarchy and democracy. The, the way the church is organized, the way our doctrine is taught, our, our practices, it, it's amazing to see. But because of that, and again, with all the, the swirling currents around us from society itself, be prepared for constant course correction. I was actually struck by this from a recent uh, comment that I heard from one of you. Uh, an interesting conversation we were having back and forth as she described uh, a wonderful husband who had left the church years ago. And the, uh, but a lot, some of it came because of, of uh, a deep dive into church history and, in my opinion, uh, uncoupling the contrary of divinity and humanity which lies at the core of so much of, of human history, as well as church history. We sometimes grow up thinking it's all divinity and no humanity, and then sometimes when we start understand, grappling with our history, we don't just correct, we overcorrect, and we think it's all humanity, and there's no divinity anywhere. Well, we were wrong at both extremes. That was one issue for him. The other, she said, was the policy the church announced back in uh, 2015 about the children of same-sex couples. That social issue just was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that was true, I saw back then, and not just for him, but so many people really struggled over that issue. And honestly, I can't blame them, especially among the rising generation. I was flooded with emails and text messages and instant messages and a line outside my office door at the Institute with, with struggling young adults wondering, what does this mean? What does this mean for my LGBTQ brothers and sisters? What does this mean for the church? I, I don't understand what's going on. And I did a lot of, of wrestling and reading and soul searching and pondering and praying myself. And as usual, for me at least, it came down to the need of proving contraries. And the need for constant course correction. I, I don't want to, to belabor the point here, but before we get to section 64, uh, and, and part of this again is to, to lay out a 
a kind of doctrinal or, or intellectual uh, apparatus to hang these things on, since the sections we're dealing with uh, in the last three weeks, as, as well as this week, are so, are so helpful in illustrating the, the, the voyage down the river, where we are constantly being pulled in either direction with constant course correction. Your hand always has to be on, on the helm or on the rudder because society itself is blowing you in, in either direction. Now when it comes to LGBT issues, as well as many others, listen to the name of this talk from President Dallin H. Oaks. Love and Law. Can you hear the contrary? Or another talk he gave on a similar subject, Truth and Tolerance. It's not just alliteration he was after, he's proving contraries there. And as I pointed out to one of my institute classes once, when we were talking about LGBT issues, your parents or grandparents' generation, not just in the church, but in humanity itself, within that set of contraries, where did they list? Where did they lean? And they all said, oh, that's easy. It was all what they considered truth and law. I said, okay, and how do you feel about that? And you could just see them wrestling with this and like, there was no room for, for the, those who are different. The marginalized were, were completely marginalized, were dehumanized and demonized. And that's just not fair. And I said, good. Okay, good. You see what's happening? You see that you're correcting an extreme that had become too hot? I said, so how about your generation? Uh, where are you in the love and law, truth and tolerance dichotomy? Where are you in improving that contrary? And it was interesting to watch the light bulb come on for them as they realized, oh no. In our zeal to correct what we saw as, a, as an extreme, we ended up overcorrecting. If our grandparents' generation was too rigid, we have become too relativistic. For them, if it was all about law, and who cares about anyone who can't live it, well, we've overcorrected, and now it's all about love, and a love that has no limits. Wow, are, are we too far on this extreme? Is love ever allowed to say no? Is, is love allowed to, to establish boundaries for the, for the good of the person that, is, that they love? God is love, the scriptures say, but God is also law. So how do we balance this? And, and like Chesterton said about a hair's breadth in one or another, an inch in either direction can spell disaster for balance. Well, if you've ever gone miniature golfing, you've probably seen a hole uh, somewhat like this, where there is a ramp and then a, a level platform and then a ramp on the other side. Up one, kind of up the hill, and then there's the top, and then down the, the hill on the other side. But the hole is at the top. It's in, on that platform, that level in the middle. And that, to me, is one of the, the most frustrating holes on the whole course. Because a little too hard, and it goes up over the top and then down the other side, and you have to start over from the opposite direction. But too soft, and it rolls up and then rolls back down, and you're right where you started. It is so hard to find that middle ground. And to me, at least, when the, to see the history of the church's policies, plural, regarding the children of same-sex couples, to me, that is a matter of trying to sink the putt in the middle with it being really, really hard. Because especially with something as significant as marriage and chastity, I mean, these are major, major defining doctrines in the kingdom of God. Chastity, one of the most serious of commandments. And, and marriage, again, I mean, to think about how, how, how the role marriage and family and procreation and the contraries of male and female in a family, 
what that has to do with the plan of salvation, the nature of divinity itself with heavenly parents that are male and female, gender part of our eternal identity and purpose. I mean, this is big stuff, which means that the, the, the ramps on either side are incredibly steep and the level on the top where the hole is, is incredibly narrow. It is a hair's breadth, as Chesterton suggested. And since we're on a, a shifting sea of cultural currents, be prepared for constant course correction along the way. I always laugh when I watch old movies and somebody's driving in the movie and there's a green screen behind them, but it's like they're, they're trying to overact that they're driving because the, 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 the hands are constantly moving on the, on the steering wheel. I'm like, man, if I actually drove like that, I'd be swerving constantly. Well, in a way, since society, the, the road beneath us is constantly swerving, then yes, we have to constantly be moving. Little left here, little right here, left, right, left, right. Trying to just stay balanced on things. I honestly wonder when it comes to that issue, if it began with the, what they call the Utah Compromise, which I thought was a stroke of legislative genius because it coupled together. It proved a contrary with tolerance on one side. We're going to join equal rights and civil rights for the LGBTQ community with religious freedoms and liberties for those among, among believers, specifically believers in a heterosexual, biblically-based theology. Now, to couple those two together, that, that's a balancing act. And that was the purpose behind that legislation. Can we get to a point where these two groups have to recognize the humanity and the, and the rights and, and freedoms and responsibilities of their ideological other? We're going to connect them in the same piece of legislation. We're going to give each side an oar in the water, and we have to learn to row together. Well, I do wonder if some people within the church, and this is just cult church culture I'm describing, I wonder if some people saw that as, oh, well, awesome. The church is finally leaning in the direction of tolerance and love. And if they overcorrected in that direction at the expense of law and truth, then can you see why the church would have to say, well, well be careful. Uh, there, there's still the law of chastity. There still is the plan of salvation and the nature of divinity and the importance of covenants and accountability to them. So if there's a child of gay parents, wonderful. We'd love to have you all come to church. That's section 46. You have spiritual gifts that we all need. And so please feel welcome to be a part of all of this. But when it comes to uh, baptism and the covenants that are being made there, we just need to make sure that this child isn't, isn't torn between a rock and a hard place. Or in this, in this case, parental love and divine doctrine. So what do we do? Now, I think many people misinterpreted this to just have this blanket statement that we're going to condemn the whole lot. And that was never the case. In fact, if there was anything blanket statement, it was a blanket statement that bishops needed to be personally involved in, in the discussion and the decision-making process with every family in that set of circumstances. It established a rule, a default position, and bishops were left with a, to, to discern the exceptions that they could then bring to the First Presidency. And in fact, as President Nelson said in a later BYU address, every single time that a bishop uh, asked the First Presidency for one of those exceptions, because they understood the situation, they talked with the parents, and they understood the, the realities of, of, what, of what was happening here, and they understood the, the significance of covenants, that they felt that they wanted their child to be able to make, even if there were parts of that covenant that the parents themselves uh, could not bring themselves to keep. 
And those are personal decisions. But like President Nelson said, every time that an exception was asked for, it was granted. Because who better to, to stand at the intersection, the, the crossroads of the, the, the collision and contradiction at the, at the heart of the cross, than a bishop who understands institutional revelation and personifies it in some ways, but also understands the individual and, and the revelations that they are receiving. I mean, it's that wonderful bishop that's there at the, at, the, at the collision of the cross. And based on those bishop's recommendations, all of those exceptions were granted. Now, unfortunately, and this is on the cultural, not the doctrinal level, many people within the church overreacted to that. Overreacted to the, to the Utah Compromise and then overreacted to the church's policy. And so then when the thinking, oh, well now, oh, forget about love and tolerance. It's all about truth and law. Okay, I guess we were right the first time. And a few years later, then the church has to go, no, 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 no. Okay, fine. We're going to change the policy then. And rather than have the default establish a rule that we'll then grant the exceptions to, we'll establish the default on the other side. And baptisms and baby blessings and so forth are, are allowed. You don't have to get the exception. This will be the new rule. But the ultimate rule hasn't changed. You see, I heard too many people during, the, during those, kind of that four-year window and, and ever since, that there was kind of a, oh, well, is God just changing his mind? Did the church see that they were wrong and now they're, they're correcting themselves? Be careful. Remember what we learned earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord commands and revokes. And, and though from the outside that might look like a, a divine change of mind, really what is it? It's constant course correction because cultural currents are shifting balances constantly. And in an issue that is of such eternal importance, steep slopes on <laughs> a very narrow level, a, a, a razor-thin Goldilocks zone. I'm not surprised at all that there has needed to be constant course correction. I am buckling up and preparing for more of it as time goes on. Now, I hope all of that made sense, and I hope you forgive me for a, a rather long digression at the beginning of this lesson. But I think it's valuable in setting the stage for the, what we're going to talk about today, specifically in section 64. What I just did in these last few minutes was establish the, the principle, this idea of proving contraries and the need for constant course correction. Well, now let's see it in practice. Two weeks ago, the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants were pulling us in the direction of mercy. Last week, it was pulling us back in the direction of justice. And today, we'll see it pulled back a little bit more in mercy, but also with justice. We're just trying to get the pendulum to calm down and quit swinging so widely and wildly. We've got to find our way to the celestial center of the straight and narrow path. And so here the Lord gives Joseph and the saints section 64, which begins with this. Behold, thus saith the Lord your God unto you, O ye elders of my church. Hearken ye and hear and receive my will concerning you. So calling the saints to attention as he so often does at the beginning of these revelations. But I love what he says at the end. I want you to receive my will concerning you. That word will came up often last week in section 63. If commandment is too strong of a word, can I just offer you some strong suggestions? Can I express to you my will in hopes that you will submit your will to mine? And there's going to be a lot of specifics as far as this will is concerned later in this section. But I love the first one he gives us in verse 2. This one is big picture will of God. For verily I say unto you, I will 
that ye should overcome the world. Wherefore, I will have compassion upon you. Now, do you sense both justice and mercy peeking out from behind that language? I will that you should overcome the world. There's justice. You've been traveling lately through the congregations of the wicked. You cannot succumb to their wickedness. Even in those mercy sections, when he said, I, I know how to succor those in, who are tempted, it's because I want you to avoid the temptation, to overcome them. You've got to learn to overcome the world. But I know how hard that is. Believe me, I condescended down into the world to be one of you. And knowing what you're up against, the tugs and pulls of this wicked world, wherefore, what a great connection between first half and the second half of verse 2, wherefore, consequently, for that reason, because I want you to overcome the world, that's why I will have compassion upon you. Because you'll need it. Nobody's going to escape this world unscathed. And so part of my condescension, come down with, is my compassion, feeling with, suffering with, going through the world with you. So you have an advocate with the Father, someone that has walked the minefield, which is mortal life, the only one to ever navigate it without ever setting off a single bomb. But in doing so, he recognizes the difficulty that we're up against, and he is compassionate as a result. It reminds me of something that, that Jesus said in the aftermath of the Last Supper, speaking to a, group, a room full of, uh, of disciples that were very troubled about what was about to take place. Jesus reassured them with this, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And you get a sense from this verse in section 64 that he wants us to do the same. I've overcome the world. So cheer up. I'm going to help you do the same. Now you have to. That's where my justice comes in. But I'll help you. That's where my mercy comes in. You see, the Lord cannot be the, the pushover professor that just passes people because he's a nice guy. No, when exaltation is on the line, we have to master the material. But neither is he the, the over-strict professor that ends up failing everyone and, and probably cackling with glee back in his office. No, the, the justice of God requires that we master the material. But his compassion, recognizing just how hard the, this life can be, I will spend as much tutoring time as you need. My office hours are eternal. I will give you as many chances as you need to pass the test. We see both of those hand in hand in verse 2. In fact, if you go back and think about that verse I just quoted from John, that's John 16. The, in the book of John, you get a sense of John's priorities. Because his, I mean, it's the old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the others. Well, John is not like the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are the synoptics. Sin meaning together, optic meaning see. Matthew, Mark, and Luke see the same kind of thing and tell the, base, the same basic outline story. John, ah, I'm doing my own thing. And his priority seems to have been the Last Supper. There's 21 chapters in John. 13 through 17 is all Last Supper and the aftermath before he gets to Gethsemane. It's a big chunk. And what's amazing is you look at John's account of what Jesus taught that night, Two things jump off the page. Over and over, the Lord talks about the world. 
We just saw it in that verse. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And you'll all need to. So much worldliness that the Lord is trying to help wean us off of. And the second element that keeps coming up is love. That better love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Or a new commandment I give you, that ye love one another, even as I have loved you. All throughout those chapters of, uh, surrounding the Last Supper, it's overcome the world through the love of God. It's actually interesting if you fast forward and see the letters of John. That was the Gospel of John. You go to the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and guess what two words appear most frequently? You guessed it. World and love. It's as if John is saying, this was the most important lesson I ever learned from Jesus, and this is the most important lesson I can teach to all of you. Learn to overcome the world through the love of God. You see the Lord hinting at both there in verse 2? I will that you should overcome the world. That's going to take all kinds of justice and mercy on my part and you learning to balance the two yourself. But you can do it. We can do that. Why do you think I have compassion upon you? That is the love of God made manifest. For God so loved the world that he sent me to atone for your sins so you could overcome the world and be forgiven for all the times that you failed to do so. And I so loved the world that I gave up my own life to make all of this possible. I will have compassion upon you. What more could I do to prove that? In verse 3, there are those among you who have sinned. There's justice speaking. But verily I say for this once, for mine own glory and for the salvation of souls, I have forgiven you your sins. So there's mercy speaking. I'm even amazed at how careful the Lord is in verse 3 when, he, when he's introducing that mercy again. He's walking the, the, the tightrope, the razor's edge. He's trying to putt that ball right so it st stays at the top and lands in the cup. When he talks about forgiveness, acknowledges their sin justly, promises them his forgiveness mercifully, but when he says in the middle, I'm just going to do it this once. Now that's interesting. For this once I've forgiven you your sins. Well. I've got a, a little bit better memory than that. Uh, how many times throughout the Doctrine and Covenants to this point has the Lord forgiven them sin? Happens all the time. We saw it in 60 and 61 and 62. I mean, we saw it way back in like section 3 when Joseph Smith messed up with 116 pages. But I'm merciful. And, and Martin Harris, and I'm calling to repent, but I'm letting you repent. Or uh, Oliver Cowdery messing things up with the, the pseudo-revelation from Hiram Page's stone. And, and, but I, I'm, I'm merciful and I'll forgive you and call you to lead the Lamanite mission. I mean, there is, there's mercy and justice flowing, woven together, intertwining throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. And all scripture for that matter. So what's the Lord mean when he says, well, well just this once? It's like, really? Was this really the last straw and, and I better get it right now? Well, no. Keep reading. We're going to see people forgiven frequently throughout the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants. And believe me, they'll need it. So what does he mean by this? I think in some ways what the Lord is trying to do is, again, pull the pendulum back in the direction of mercy, but keep it from going so far in that direction that it's like, oh, he have you noticed he keeps forgiving us? I bet he'll, he'll keep doing it in the future. So, hey, put it on his tab. And it was Paul that warned his readers as he emphasized grace so much. He warned his readers never to presume upon it. 
And that is such a powerful principle. In fact, if, if you want an interesting experience, read through especially the book of Romans and look for Paul's God forbid statements. And usually what that is, is pulling us back from, from going overcorrecting in one extreme. I've used the ship analogy and the teeter-totter analogy and, and the miniature golf analogy. Well, this is like bumper bowling. If you pick your analogy, whichever works for you. And with bumper bowling, it's like, no, we're going to need to make sure they don't go gutter ball on the right. Ooh, we don't want gutter ball on the left. And every time Paul uses a God forbid, it's because the bowling ball was headed towards one of the gutters. And he's got to pull it back. And so as he's teaching grace to a people that were overemphasizing works, well, if we get too far on the direction of grace, then, well, God forbid that we presume upon that grace and just run up the tab because we know that God is rich in mercy and will end up paying it all. Now, we have to be more just than that. We have to be more careful than that. And so even though the Lord will give us as many chances as we need, we need to approach each one of them as if it were our last and our first, and our only. Remember what Alma taught at the end of the book of Mosiah. As often as my people repent, I will forgive them. That is such a beautiful promise. I mean, he says it in the New Testament. How many times do you guys need to forgive? Seven times 70. And I don't mean 490. Put away the abacus. I, I, I'm, I'm putting that out there to suggest that you should lose count. And stop keeping track of how much that person owes you for how forgiving you've been. No, just blanket statement. Be forgiving of others. And to see God in that light, as often as you repent, I'll forgive you. And, but here, all, the other side, here's the other, the bumper in the other gutter. I will forgive you this once. If you fall and fail in the future. I will forgive you that once also. But we need to treat it as a new experience with a renewed covenant and new responsibility and accountability and godly sorrow every time. I'm trying to recreate you, establish righteous reflexes. So do not presume upon my grace. In the middle of verse 3, I also love those phrases, for mine own glory and for the salvation of souls. There's something about repentance and forgiveness. It's obvious that it's for the salvation of soul, our souls. We're, we're toast without it. But it's amazing that there's something about our, for, our repentance and our subsequent forgiveness that gives God glory. I wonder in some ways if that's a matter of validating his plan from the beginning, of proving the father right and the devil wrong, that agency was not too great a risk that we would learn from our mistakes rather than be condemned for them, that we would have a desire to change and to do better. Proof that, that as, he, as the Lord says back in section 60, I am able to make you holy. Now that's that's going to be a long process. <laughs> You're going to need a lot of practice with it. Okay, But we'll get there. And the fact that it's actually working that you're becoming holier because you're deciding to repent of your sins. There is remorse based on the misuse of your agency. Conscience is actually a real thing. It's, it's working and people are becoming better. That is a glorious validation of the Father's plan. What a blessing we get to repent. 
Now, verse 4, he goes on. I keep looking out for this, this balance, this, the hair's breadth, the inch in either direction. Verse 4, I will be merciful unto you, for I have given unto you the kingdom. Notice the future tense and the past tense in that verse. I will be merciful. I mean, I have been. I've forgiven you this since, this once, right? I will continue in the future to be merciful because you'll need it. And it's mercy in service to justice. Because why do I keep needing to be merciful? Because I keep maintaining my justice. Yes, I still expect you to get there. You have to master the material. I'm not going to pass you if you don't deserve it. But let's do another retake, okay? Let's, let's take some tutoring time. Come to my office hours. I will be merciful to you. But then this past tense, for I have given unto you the kingdom. It's not just, well, I know I'm going to need to be merciful because eventually I want to give you the kingdom and you've you, you got to be able to, to handle it. Be clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Well, I want to give you the vessels. No, it's like, no, I already have. I've given you the kingdom. And just like I understand what you're up against in terms of a world that I'm asking you to overcome, I also understand the weight that is on your shoulders because the keys of the kingdom are heavy. It's going to require a lot of mercy on my part. As I watch you, as I've tried to, to help my children learn how to drive, and I give them the keys, and they put it in the, the ignition, and I'm in the passenger seat, white-knuckling something, right? I'm trying to keep a poker face and, and build them up with some confidence, but knowing I will have to be merciful because I'm asking you to drive something that's bigger than you are. And not always easy to, to control or easy to correct. <laughs> Have you ever seen a, a new driver overcorrect when they're making a mistake? Okay, speaking of finding a balance and proving contraries. The kingdom of God is a hard standard to live up to. So yes, I will be merciful to you. Even in your mistakes of administration, your lapses in leadership, your, your judgment calls that have evidenced a little bit of poor judgment. We're all learning here. And so I'll be merciful even for you who are called to, to build the kingdom. Those to whom I've given the keys already. Verse 5, speaking of those keys, the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom shall not be taken from my servant Joseph Smith Jr. through the means I have appointed while he liveth, inasmuch as he obeyeth mine ordinances. You get a sense of mercy and justice there too. I'm not going to take those keys away, Joseph, even though you haven't been perfect. You and, and Edward Partridge with some friction down there in Missouri. Well, You've got some things to repent of too. We'll see that in a second. But I'm not going to take away the keys. Well, not as long as he is striving diligently to obey mine ordinances. We saw earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants, repeatedly, from Joseph Smith on down, that anybody's replaceable. And that's God's justice speaking. But his mercy is, is always hand in hand with that other side. Both divine attributes define him. So Joseph, I, I expect you to obey mine ordinances. But I'm not going to take away the keys of the kingdom as long as you are striving. Number six, there are those who have sought occasion against him without cause. Interesting phrase there. They sought occasion against him. They were looking for it. We'll see it again in verse eight. This is a common problem and you name the dispensation. But people that are fault finders, and not because it was just so brutally obvious that you, you couldn't help but, but recognize this fault. No, they were fault finders in terms of seeking those faults. Someone sought occasion against him and had no reason for doing so, without cause. 
There's that interesting phrase when Paul describes charity, the pure love of Christ, and he says that charity rejoiceth not in iniquity. And the more I've pondered that phrase, I wonder if it, it's, it, to me it suggests this idea of fault finding, that I'm looking, searching for some fault in somebody else, some piece of iniquity that I can then rejoice over. Like, haha, see, they're not perfect either. And now I'm justified in not being perfect myself. I don't have to, especially in leaders, I don't have to listen to them. I found this fault. Remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Get careful about, about pulling, plucking out motes in your brother's eye when you've got a beam sticking out of yours. This little sliver there? Well, pull out the two-by-four, my friend, first. And, I, and then you get that sense here about these fault finders that are looking for, for specks in someone else's character to magnify and blow out of proportion. Now, that's not to say that the other person's eye is flawless, uh, because there is the moat there. There is the speck. And the Lord admits that in, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Take out the, the beam in yours first, and then you'll see more clearly. So he's not overemphasizing mercy to the point of, oh, and forget what's in, in, in the, the eyes of anybody else. No, it's, there's still justice. I do want the speck out, but I want your beam out first. You see that justice poking back in verse 7. Nevertheless... He has sinned. So there, Joseph did make mistakes when he was in Missouri. I'm always amazed how, how open Joseph is with those mistakes. And the Lord, it's like, oh man, I have to canonize my imperfection again? You chewed me out in section 3, now you're chewing me out in section 64? Man, well, oh well, here it, here it is. Nevertheless, he has sinned. There's justice. But, verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me and ask forgiveness, who have not sinned unto death. So again, do you see both attributes? He's sinned, there's justice, but I forgive him, there's mercy. Right? Even those words like nevertheless and but, those great uh, conjunctions, there's the bumper in the, in the bowling lane. People shouldn't have been looking, uh, seeking occasion against Joseph. There's mercy. Oh, nevertheless, bounce. Let's move in this direction. But he has sinned. But, now let's move it back. I love how the Lord is, even grammatically, just trying to help us stay in the middle lane. And then, like I said, verse 8 goes back to what we saw in verse 6 about seeking occasion. The Lord's up there going, you know, your behavior reminds me of my disciples back when I was on the earth in my mortal ministry. He did that back in section 45, remember? He's describing signs of the times. He's like, whoa, you guys all look troubled. Whoa, deja vu. My apostles were troubled when I told them about this 1,800 years ago. Well, let me reassure you like I reassured them. Same thing here. You disciples are seeking occasion against Joseph Smith. And Joseph himself has made some mistakes. And okay, I, I, you all need to repent. And I can be forgiving to all. But verse 8, same thing back in my days. My disciples in days of old, similarly, sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. I mean, you want to see divinity in mortal people? Read the New Testament. But you want to see humanity <laughs> mingled with the divinity? Then read the New Testament again. And you'll see a Peter who not only denies Christ three times, but also... Oh, kind of haggles over reward and when he, when he compares himself to the rich young ruler or a James and John who don't just want to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. That was a rough day. But also are haggling over, oh, the seating chart on, on, on resurrection day. Hey, can we sit next to you when the, when the kingdom is here? 
I mean, dibs, I want pole position, best seat in the house. And the other apostles are like, what, how dare you do that? And, and their mom's asking for, for favors. It's like, wow, you see a lot of humanity among the original Quorum of the Twelve. Well, you see the same thing among church leaders even in, in the 1830s. And the Lord's not using this to, to justify the, the similar behavior now. He's using it as a cautionary tale that you've got to be better than that. Don't be fault finders. Don't rejoice in someone else's iniquity. Don't cackle over the speck, the moat that you saw in their eye. Be more forgiving. In fact, the way he said it at the end of verse 8, for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Not the evil that they had recognized in others, but the evil in themselves that made them want to recognize what was evil in someone else. You understand the difference there? It's amazing. Yes, there's evil there. Yes, there's things to, that they need to work on. Yes, Joseph has sinned as well. But the, the evil I'm chastening and afflicting people for is the judgmentalness. It's the all justice and no mercy for them. When for some reason you always seem to want all mercy and no justice for yourself. we, we got things to work on on both sides here. The Lord then begins a brief discussion on that topic of forgiveness, which I said from the start today is such a perfect balance of justice and mercy itself. Notice how he says it. Verse 9, Wherefore I say unto you, that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. Now that's an incredible statement. The greater sin, rather than, I mean, if there's perpetrators and victims here, that whatever the perpetrator did against the victim, that, that was bad enough. But if the victim doesn't forgive the perpetrator, then they're guilt, the guiltier of the two. There's a greater sin over here for withholding forgiveness. Now, that, that's an amazing statement. In fact, my mom told me once that when I was this, was, this story comes from so early in my life that I was too young to even remember it. But my mom said at one point when my sister and I were, were super young, she's two years older than I am, and we must have been having some kind of family home evening lesson or scriptural discussion or whatever, but my mom taught that principle to us. I mean, here's a young mother trying to teach her little kids, friction between brothers and sisters, right, that you need to be able to say sorry to each other and you need to forgive each other when you do. And she taught that principle, that if you don't forgive when the other person says they're sorry, then what you did was actually worse than what they did. And according to the story that my mom tells, said my sister just jumped on that and immediately said, well, that Jared always does that. He, he never forgives me when I say I'm sorry. So he, what he did is worse, huh? And my mom said, I just sat there, I don't know, two years old, three years old, whatever it was, and I just started bawling just devastated. And I cried out in the agony of my soul. But I didn't know. I didn't know. Just bawling. And my mom said, you know, she, she took it personally and said, you know, he didn't know. This is the first time I've taught that principle. Uh, so this was sinning in ignorance. And, and we can work through this. Actually, my mom said that at that moment she decided, I never want to leave my children in such a condition that they'll, that they'll have to say that someday. I don't want them crying that they didn't know that they'd done something wrong. They didn't want, she didn't want us to sin in ignorance. So she made sure we knew <laughs> in, in kind and merciful ways. But there was justice there too. She, she balanced things beautifully, as did my dad. But this is a principle worth knowing. But it can be a hard one, especially when the sin that initiated all this, that what the perpetrator did to the victim is horrific. 
It's one thing to say, ah, oh, don't worry about it, I forgive you, when somebody, I don't know, cuts you off on the freeway. It's another thing entirely. When the kind of sin you are trying to forgive is something that has traumatized you, whether it's rape or violence or abuse, the horrific things that people can do to one another. Are you serious? That me not forgiving them is, makes me a greater sinner than they were? Now, I want, I want to talk about that in just a moment. But before I do, can I, can I suggest a few reasons why this may be true? In fact, why it is true? When I think of forgiveness as something that just is about me and the other person, and well, I didn't say, okay, I didn't say I forgive you. Is it really that, does it make me a, a vile sinner worse than what they were? Well, put it in these terms. If I am honestly trying to withhold forgiveness, not just mine, but forgiveness in general, I'm playing God. I am passing judgment, perhaps even final judgment, and saying that person should not be forgiven for that sin. Playing God is serious business. To, to put it in another way, I'm standing in the way of Jesus. I'm drawing a line in the sand and saying, your redemption can go this far, but no further. You cannot forgive that person. I certainly can't. I'm holding on to this sin, and you should too. And that is serious. To, to draw a limit on an atonement that by definition was meant to be eternal and infinite, but to stand in the way of God's redeeming light and love to keep someone else in its shadow. I mean, you remember when, when Peter, bless his heart, but what bold, impetuous, and imperfect Peter, when he first hears, this is uh, Matthew 16, when, when Jesus says to the apostles, I have to go back to Jerusalem where I'll be betrayed and crucified and rise again the third day. And Peter jumps, kind of jumps ahead of him and puts his hand out basically and says, no, th this be far from thee. We won't let it happen. We'll protect you. We'll save you from it. We don't go back to Jerusalem. And what's the Lord's response? Much to Peter's shock, I'm sure. He says, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. And you picture poor Peter going like, whoa, 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 what? Did, did he just call me Satan? Are, are you serious? I, I, I'm just trying to help. I, I'm trying to protect you. But from Jesus' perspective? No, who is it that's standing in my way for my rendezvous with redemption? Who doesn't want me to go to Jerusalem and suffer for the sins of the world? That is Satan. Even the word Satan, it's more of a title than a name, and it means the adversary. Peter, you are being adversarial here. Even though you mean to be my friend, you're standing in my way. And, and only the devil does that. So why are we guilty of a greater sin? Because we're usurping the authority of God himself to pass judgment. And we're standing in the way of the redemption of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're standing in our own way. As President Kimball once said, that anyone who does not forgive someone else has burned the bridge over which they must pass if they hope to return to God. I can't sink their ship because I'm sitting in it with them. And we're all going under unless forgiveness is offered to us all. Now, where's the justice in all that? Have we overcorrected? Have we swung the pendulum and, uh, to the point of, of we're falling off on the edge of mercy and, and no one's ever going to be held accountable and I'll just be re-victimized because I'm going to keep forgiving them every time? No, 
There's still justice here, and we'll see that in a moment. But the commandment stands from the start. We have to become forgiving people. That must become our default position. Now before I go on and reintroduce the justice side, there's two things I want to say about this idea of, of forgiving, just blanket uh, forgiveness across the board. We are supposed to forgive all. He'll say that explicitly in verse 10. But lest we fall off on the direction of mercy with no justice, let me bring up a, st a statement that came from Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve. He actually spoke to victims and perpetrators of abuse twice. One way back in the early 90s and then again, I believe, in, in 2008. And in that, in that later address, he said something to the victims of abuse. Because you want to talk about forgiveness and then put it, kind of push that doctrine in the face of those who have been abused by others. And that is, that's a hard saying. Who can hear it? And I was so grateful by something that I'd never heard taught so clearly than I did that day from Elder Scott. He promised the victims this. As impossible as it may seem to you now, in time, the healing you can receive from the Savior will allow you to truly forgive the abuser and even have feelings of sorrow for him or her. When you can forgive the offense, you will be relieved of the pain and heartache that Satan wants in your life by encouraging you to hate the abuser. And as a result, you will enjoy greater peace. Now, Elder Scott could have stopped there and it would have been an amazing message that forgiveness isn't about the other person. Forgiveness is about you. It's part of that healing process. I remember what Brigham Young said, that, that an offense is like getting bit by a rattlesnake. And when that happens to you, you've got two options. You can either chase down the rattlesnake and kill it, get it back for what it did to you. But what's the problem there? You've just sent that poison coursing through your veins as you've been out chasing down the perpetrator. The other option, Brother Brigham said, was stop what you're doing. And I don't care, couldn't care less about the rattlesnake if it's slithering away. I just have to do everything I can to, to suck the poison out because that's what's going to kill me. By commanding us to, to forgive, the Lord is not asking us to, to sin against justice, but he is asking us to seek mercy for ourselves. That's part of that healing process. Like I said, that would have been a beautiful message in and of itself. But it's this, the next statement from Elder Scott that, that riveted my attention. I've never heard this taught. He said, while an important part of healing, if the thought of forgiveness causes you yet more pain, set that step aside until you have more experience with the Savior's healing power in your own life. That was so insightful of Elder Scott. Because if you've been hurt or harmed or abused, traumatized by someone, and now you're being told, oh, you have to forgive them, well, now I'm being traumatized all over again. This is like a double victimization. I feel horrible about what was done to me, and now I feel even more horrible about myself. Uh, I mean, if I'm the greater sinner because I can't forgive them. No, Elder Scott nor the Lord is trying to, to double victimize you. They don't want to increase your trauma. And so I was so grateful for that, that incredible statement. Don't beat yourself up if you cannot forgive the other person. Because honestly, forgiveness is a gift from God for them and for you. Remember the end of Moroni 7 where, where Mormon promises this, that, that charity is a gift that God bestows upon all those who diligently serve him? It's a gift. 
And if forgiveness is part of the gift of charity, then wait for it to come. Just don't, don't white knuckle and clench your fists or grit your teeth. And I mean, you've seen that happen with little kids, right? Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Say you forgive them. I forgive you. It's like, wow, that was heartfelt. <laughs> Nothing of the sort. And it's the heart that the Lord's after. We'll see that over and over today. Back in verse 8, they forgave not one another in their hearts. Keep an eye out for that phrase. It'll come up again in a moment. But for it to be heartfelt, it can't be just kind of, mm, you know, will myself into forgiveness, especially when you're up against that, those kinds of odds. In many ways, forgiveness is less about coming horizontally to the other person and much more about coming vertically unto Christ. Because he's the one that will ultimately forgive the other person from that eternal judgment. And he can help you forgive them from the passing judgment that you are, that, that's coming from you. I love that statement. So, those who are truly traumatized by this, the Lord is not using verse 9 as a club to worsen your condition. Be patient with yourself. Keep coming unto Christ and allow that healing power, the grace that flows through the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's like your cup is full of, of, hurt, of hatred and hurt, bitterness and blame, but also so much pain. And as the Lord begins to pour his healing love into that cup until it fills and overflows, guess what spills out of the top? It's that bitterness. It's that, that anger, it's that hurt, it's, it's all healing now. And without any of that, the, 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 the negativity that's now spilled over the side, of course I find myself oh, just naturally forgiving the other person. I'm so filled with the love of God, I have enough and to spare for the other. That's a gift from God. Let it come. Now one other thing before we get on with verse 10. Go with me to the Book of Mormon in Jacob chapter 3. I've never seen a better example of, of a prophet speaking to the victims of some kind of abuse. Chapter 2 of Jacob, Jacob chews out the wicked Nephite fathers and husbands for having broken the hearts and lost the confidence of their tender wives and children. That's chapter 2, that's justice. But chapter 3, Jacob shifts his attention to the, from the perpetrator to the victim and shifts from justice to the first group to mercy to the second group. It's such a beautiful statement. Uh, unfortunately, we tend to end our scripture study where there's a chapter break. And by the time we start chapter 3, we forgot what we were doing with chapter 2. Well, keep on reading. Jacob chapter 3, verse 1, But behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. And he sends him shifting his gaze now to the victim. And then he gives to those pure in heart some advice and some reassuring promises. By way of advice, he says, first of all, look unto God with firmness of mind. I'm not even talking about the other person. Look to God and to pray unto him with exceeding faith. As you do, what are the promises that come? First, he will console you in your afflictions and he will plead your cause and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. See, there's the, God still has his eye on them. You don't have to keep thinking about them, but God will take care of it. We'll see that in section 64 as well. He's your advocate pleading your cause, but he's also the judge passing judgment and justice upon the perpetrator. 
Verse 2, all, all ye that are pure in heart, I'm still talking to you. Next piece of advice, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God. I know that's easier said than done. To lift up your head when it's hanging down in shame, to receive the pleasing word of God when all you feel from it often is hurt, well, try that. Do your best. Come unto Christ to receive it. And then the next phrase, and feast upon his love. For ye may, if your minds are firm forever. His love will always be there. That's what he's trying to pour into your cup. Feast upon it. Two times in, the, in those verses, he uses the phrase firmness of mind. Which for me, being surrounded by the challenges of mental health, I'm amazed by that phrase to have you make sure your minds are firm. Don't let them go down that path. Don't re-dredge up the painful memories. Don't allow the victim to, to perpetually victimize you. Hold on to positive thoughts. Talk back to negative self-talk. Keep your mind firm. And as you do, you will be able to feast upon the love of God forever. You'll receive his, his pleasing word. You'll lift up your head. You'll be able to rejoice. In fact, you'll be able to forgive. I'll take care of you with mercy, even as I take care of them with justice. Such a powerful principle taught by Jacob there and taught again by the Lord in section 64. Right on the heels of that discussion of verse 9, that the great, where's the greater sin and, and why we need to forgive, he reiterates, verse 10, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you, it is required to forgive all men. Now that should actually take some pressure off as far as deciding whether or not a person deserves forgiveness. The Lord lets us know, you don't have all the information. You don't know everything that's gone on in the life of the perpetrator. You're not going to be able to pass perfect judgment. So for you, for your sake, let me just remove from you the burden of trying to pass judgment or sentence. You just forgive. It's required of you to forgive all men. Now, what makes that hard? Sometimes it's our, our weakness that makes that difficult. That we're, that we're spiteful or vengeful or we just, oh, I don't want to let this thing go. But sometimes, alternatively, we have a hard time forgiving, not because of our weakness, but because of our strength. Because we know the importance of justice. And to just turn another cheek or just to let them off, are seriously? They, no, they, they need to pay for this. And forgiving them feels less like a, a gift of mercy and more like a sin against justice. Well, reread the verse. When he starts with, I the Lord will forgive whom I will forgive. Ooh, that, you mean... You mean yours is not going to be a blanket forgiveness? Nope. I forgive whom I will forgive. And that requires repentance on their part, and remorse, and restitution, and change, godly sorrow, broken heart, contrite spirit. I want their repentance to be redemptive for them and for you. I want this for the salvation of souls, he said back in verse 3. Both souls in question, perpetrator and victim. All for the glory of God, because this is how the plan is supposed to work. I will be both just and merciful, and you can trust me on that. It goes back to what Jacob said about pleading our cause, there's advocate, but sending down justice upon the head of the person that did this to you. There's the just side of him, the judge. I'll take care of that. And that's what he's asking us to leave in his hands. We've seen it elsewhere in scripture. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay 
And I'll pay them with justice if that's what they deserve. I'll pay you with mercy because that's what you need and deserve. In verse 11, so he tells us, ye ought to say in your hearts. Again, not just lip service. It has to be heartfelt, which is why it, it comes as a gift so that you can actually mean it. You ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. You see, justice will be served even in all of this talk of mercy and forgiveness. You provide the mercy. I'll take care of the justice. And again, however much mercy you send in their direction, I will send a hundredfold in your direction to reassure, to comfort, to console. You know who did that this beautifully was, was the young David. When, when David, after he beats Goliath and comes back and Saul all of a sudden thinks, wait a minute, you're going to take the, you're going to be the next king, not my son Jonathan. Now Jonathan's totally fine with it. He's best friends with David and, and doesn't have a jealous bone in his body. But I guess all those bones were, were in Saul. And repeatedly, he tries to kill David. And repeatedly, David forgives in fact, at one point, when he even cuts off the hem of, of Saul's robe when he was sleeping in a cave that, that David was hiding in, and then lets him go, and David comes and you know, shows up a little later and holds it up and says, uh, here's exhibit A, that I could have killed you. I was, you were right where I, where I wanted you, and I didn't do it. I bear you no ill will. Why are you trying to, to kill me? And even that he feels guilty about. I shouldn't have done that. That's the Lord's anointed. It's like, Lord's anointed? What? He's not worthy of any anointing. You are, David. But what's David do? He leaves it in God's hands. From his heart, he forgave Saul and left it in God's hands. And what did God do? Saul did pay a price for it. He did lose the kingdom. He was killed in battle. But the blood was not on David's hands. Both men were rewarded with their due. But, but leave it in God. Now to do that, to leave it in God's hands, both the justice for the perpetrator and mercy for the victim requires an intense amount of faith. But that's exactly what the Lord is trying to develop within us. In fact, remember the, the famous phrase from the New Testament, Lord, increase our faith? It's a great phrase. Always seems to be taken out of context, though, because it usually shows up and talks about, you guessed it, faith. I mean, it makes sense to, be, to use that, talk, that verse in a, in a talk about faith, because you're asking the Lord to increase your faith faith. But read the whole chapter there, uh, Luke 17, and it's in the context of forgiveness. It's where Jesus has told the apostles, you need to forgive. And they're like, well, how many times or how often? He says, you know, if somebody, the, the seven times 70 is elsewhere. This one, he says, if somebody offends you seven times in the same day, I mean, you'd think that their remorse would last a little longer. But if they, if they sin against you seven times in a day, forgive them all seven. And you picture the apostles going, is he serious? Because that's when they say to the Lord, increase our faith. You see what they're asking for? The faith to forgive. Faith in Christ that justice and mercy will be meted in the ways that they ought to. If you're struggling with forgiveness, it might be more a matter of faith than forgiveness. Come unto Christ and, and build your faith in him. Now back to section 64, verse 12. Now him that repenteth not of his sins, and confesseth them not, 
ye shall bring before the church, and do with him as the scripture saith unto you, either by commandment or by revelation. So now we're, we're back to justice. If they're not repenting, if they're not confessing, then justice is there, because mercy can't rob justice from its demands. And if a person isn't even applying for mercy through their repentance, then all they have left is justice. So here's where church discipline comes in. We saw some of that earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants. We'll see some of it later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. We saw it in the Book of Mormon several times. Uh, maintaining the, the sanctity of the sacraments is important. Justice must be honored. In fact, that's just as important to God as mercy is. Look at verse 13. This ye shall do that God may be glorified. Not because ye forgive not, have ye not compassion, but that ye may be justified in the eyes of the law, that ye may not offend him who is your lawgiver. Fascinating verse. When he says, you've got to, to be just in verse 12 to the non-repentant, that's so that God might be glorified. I mean, we saw back at the beginning of the section in verse 3 that forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness is for God's glory. Well, if mercy establishes God's glory, justice does too. Because like I said, he is perfect at both attributes. So the times that you have to lead out with justice in, in matters of discipline, it's not because you're unforgiving. It's not because you're not compassionate. That's not it at all. Because that's an uncoupled contrary in the wrong direction, where it's justice with no chance for mercy. But if you're perfectly balanced, and you want to forgive, and you are compassionate, I feel for that person. But my compassion would actually push me to be just with the unrepentant. So they realize the importance of repenting so that then mercy can come. They've got to change. And it's my compassion upon them, my mercy for them, my love for them, that makes me want to hold them accountable for their sins. That's an important balance for each of us to strike. And, and like he says at the end of that verse, if you want to be justified in the eyes of the law, then you need to honor the justice side of God, even as you're holding on to, to the merciful and compassionate side. You don't want to offend him who is your lawgiver. You see, if we're all justice and no mercy, then we have offended the Lord of love. But if we're all mercy and no justice, then we have offended the Lord of law. That, after all, was the title of one of those talks from President Oaks, Love and Law. The Lord is the source of both. So don't swing the pendulum too far. Don't overcorrect. Justice and mercy have to be balanced perfectly, or we will offend him who lives in perfect balance of those attributes. Verse 14, Verily I say, For this cause ye shall do these things. The, the cause of Christ, the cause of, of redemption, the cause of the kingdom of God, saving souls, which requires that perfect balance of justice and mercy. Now the Lord's going to get more specific now. So far most of this was a big picture. What's my will? that you overcome the world. That's going to take justice and mercy. It's going to take repentance and forgiveness. It's going to take compassion and, and divine expectation. Now let's get into some more specific cases. Verse 15, Behold, I the Lord was angry with him who was my servant Ezra Booth, and also my servant Isaac Morley, for they kept not the law, neither the commandment. So there's some justice for those two. Interesting, the past tense, by the way, I was angry. We saw that in a previous revelation, right? I was angry yesterday, but today, I'm going to give you another chance. My compassions are new every morning, right? Lamentations. But here, I was angry. That's a, a positive past tense. But then here's a negative past tense. With him who was my servant Ezra Booth. 
I'm no longer angry with him, but he's no longer my servant. Remember, Ezra Booth was the one that went down to Zion, only saw it through the natural eyes and for the present time, and came back with a negative report. And not just negative about Zion, negative about Joseph Smith, negative about the whole thing. Went home and, and left the church and began attacking it. He's the author of some of the earliest anti-Mormonism that we've got. So no more at the servant of God. Compare that to Isaac Morley. He's in the same sinking ship in verse 15, but then go on to 16. They, both of them, sought evil in their hearts, and I, the Lord, withheld my spirit. They condemned for evil that thing in which there was no evil. And then the good news for at least one passenger in this ship. Nevertheless, I have forgiven my servant Isaac Morley. Morley was a good guy. He's the one that was willing to give up his farm. We'll see more talk of that today. And he's forgiven. And there's no mention in verse 16 about forgiveness for Ezra Booth. And sure enough, Booth never sought it. So the Lord is very careful, meeting out correct, in correct portions the justice and mercy to, to either man. Now, verse 17, we get another person that needs a little bit of condemnation and some reassurance of forgiveness, Bishop Partridge. Also my servant Edward Partridge, behold, he hath sinned, and Satan seeketh to destroy his soul. But when these things are made known unto them, and they repent of the evil, they shall be forgiven. And that describes Bishop Partridge to a T as well. Yes, he made a mistake. So did Joseph. He, it's interesting that, that the two men were kind of, again, not, not mano a mano. There was no fisticuffs there in, in Missouri. But some hard feelings between the two and some disagreement and not seeing eye to eye. And Joseph was, was ch chastened and corrected back in verse 7. And now uh, Edward Partridge is chastened and forgiven here in verse 17. Takes two to tango, right? Is it two people to have a fight? Some good parenting going on here. But I do love the heart of both men. And when it comes to Edward Partridge, remember he was the one, this Israelite, in whom there was no guile. Even when, when there was a, a meeting to try to reconcile the two parties, uh, at one point, Bishop Partridge says, If Joseph hasn't forgiven me yet, I hope that he will. For I am, and I always have been, sorry. I love that contrition, that godly sorrow on the part of Bishop Partridge. And Joseph, for his part, was so good at repenting and so good at forgiving as well. With such a difficult world to overcome and with the weight of the kingdom on his shoulders, these men had a lot of practice uh, doing both things. And I am impressed with the lot, those final phrases. As soon as these things are made known, they repent and they're forgiven. So much of it is simply a, a, a sin and ignorance. It's like, you know, little mini-me. I didn't know. I didn't know. Well, now you know. And, and I know you'll, you'll repent. And I know you'll be forgiven. This, this is redemptive. Life is meant to be a learning experience, not just a probation where you, you, you failed the test and you're out. Yes, there's a test, my justice. But you can always retake it, my mercy. Now, verse 18, Now verily I say that it is expedient in me that my servant Sidney Gilbert, after a few weeks, shall return upon his business and to his agency in the land of Zion. So here's some more specific instructions for specific individuals. Sidney Gilbert was Bishop Partridge's agent, helping with the, the temporal affairs. Remember, that was his, his wheelhouse. He was good at that. And the Lord says it's expedient in me. He's not using the language of commandment, but with expedience. You've come back to Kirtland to do some work here, but your business lies in the land of Zion. So get back to business. 
Verse 19, And that which he hath seen and heard may be made known unto my disciples, that they perish not. And for this cause have I spoken these things. So Sidney Gilbert is going to be able to take what he's learned. Remember, if we've got people in both, situa in both spots, Kirtland and Independence, and when Joseph's receiving revelations in Independence, the people in Kirtland don't know about it, so he's got to come back home and get them caught up. Well, now he's receiving revelations in Kirtland. Well, the, the folks down in Missouri don't know about that. Well, Sidney Gilbert, you're going to be going back to, get back, to, back to business down there. Well, what have you seen here? What have you learned here? Especially, what have you learned about forgiveness? about justice and mercy and how to balance the two, when you get back to Zion, since that's really what the order of the day will call for, teach these things. We don't want them to perish and fall off either edge of this balance beam. In verse 20, we're back to Isaac Morley. And again, I say unto you, that my servant Isaac Morley may not be tempted above that which he is able to bear and counsel wrongfully to your hurt. I gave commandment that his farm should be sold. Now this verse can be a little confusing because the order it said. If you flip the order, it's a little easier to understand. So if the Lord said, you know, I gave commandment to Isaac Morley to sell his farm. Now why did I do that? That he wouldn't be tempted above that which he is able to bear. So he wouldn't counsel wrongfully to other people's hurt. That's, that's the whole reason I asked him to consecrate. Remember, consecration is supposed to wean us off the natural man. The law of consecration is supposed to help us become a Zion people so we can eventually build a Zion place. It's what helps us become of one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness with no poor among us. And you know what, Brother Morley? That farm that you possessed, it kind of possessed you. Remember what we saw back in section 19 about Martin Harris, quit coveting your own property. It's like, what? If it's mine, then how do I covet it? Oh, you're right. It's not mine. It's yours. I need to see it that way. Remember what he said to uh, K. Whitney? It's the store, not your store. Let's, let's wean ourselves off of these possessive pronouns. And I honestly, Isaac, I'm doing this for your sake. If you don't sell your farm, you won't be able to give good counsel. I mean, as you're trying to help with temporal affairs with Bishop Partridge down in Missouri, for you to be able to speak out of experience, for you to be able to teach with authenticity and integrity, as you are talking to consecrated and consecrating saints, as you're helping to divide out stewardships, oh, you don't want to counsel wrongfully to your hurt or to theirs. You don't want to speak out of a place of, of hypocrisy or regret. So sell the farm, just like I'll be asking a lot of other people to do as well. And the other phrase, so that you're not tempted above you are able to bear. That's why I say the, the, the farm he possessed was kind of possessing him. This covetousness, even when it's your own property you're coveting. This inability. I mean, think about the, the rich young ruler when he walks away sorrowfully. But even more sorrowful was the Lord. I was trying to save you from yourself. Not just provide for the poor. I mean, I can do that. And here, Isaac Morley... Your, your worldly wealth either has become or will yet become a, te a temptation bigger than you can handle. So let it go. Walk away from it. There was actually a fascinating story when Hubie Brown uh, was about to strike it rich in the Canadian oil fields. And he, and he knew it and was actually a little more concerned than just excited. And so he prayed and was like, Heavenly Father, I don't know what wealth is going to do to me and to my family. If it's going to hurt us more than help us, then, I don't know, 
keep us from getting too rich for our own good. And the Lord took him up on that offer and called him to the Quorum of the Twelve. Amazing. Uh, I heard a similar, a somewhat similar story about Heber J. Grant, who was just so good at making money, he was like, couldn't even help himself. No wonder he was the one to lead the church through the Great Depression. The Lord knew who he was calling. But at one point earlier in life, uh, he had all these, this stock in a railroad that, that looked like he was going to really make it big and he was going to get rich on the, the increase uh, in the value of all this stock. And he worried about that. So at one point, uh, he, he made two piles of stock certificates, a big one and a little one, and prayed to know, Heavenly Father, which of these should I sell now? And he felt inspired, get rid of the big one, because yeah, that one will make you too rich. So instead of buying low and selling high, he sold low, so he didn't have to worry about what would happen when it was high. That was in, in his personal finances. Uh, it really is interesting to see when the Lord can kind of judge the, the, the thermometer of our temptations and realize, yeah, now's the time to get out. That temptation is on the rise, and soon enough you won't be able to handle it. In fact, that's such an important part of the verse that we sometimes misquote to our, to our detriment. The phrase there in verse 20 about not being tempted above that which he is able to bear probably made us think of, of the verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where the Lord promises that we won't face temptation bigger than we can handle. At least that's how we quote it. And unfortunately, by, by kind of making this blanket statement that, oh, there's never going to be a, a temptation I can't handle, we sometimes kind of cavalierly throw ourselves into harm's way, and we end up meeting a temptation that we can't handle. I mean, if it really is just a simple statement of, oh no, you'll, you can handle anything, then why have we ever sinned? Because any sin on our, on our record or on our conscience is proof that, ouch, I met a, a, a temptation that I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't beat. So what did Paul really mean when he said that in 1 Corinthians 10? Well, read the whole verse. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Important statement there. You are not unique in having to face this temptation. Whatever temptation that might be, there are others who have had to navigate that same minefield. You're not the exception to the rule. Next phrase. But God is faithful. He's there with you. He's, he's condescended. He has compassion. He knows what it's like. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. That's usually where we stop. But he didn't stop. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now do you see that promise in context? He didn't say, oh, you can you'll always be able to handle whatever temptation surfaces. No, he says, as the temptation is beginning to grow, because that's typically what happens. The longer we entertain a, a, an evil thought, the longer we're in the presence of temptation, the bigger it starts to loom, the more uh, appealing it becomes to us. And so what does the Lord do when it gets to that point? He always makes a way for us to escape. It's like the, the flashing lights turn on, uh, the, the escape hatch, the, you know, the, the eject button or lever appears. And he's like, now's the time to get out. Right now, you're bigger than the, the temptation. But wait a little longer and all bets are off. In fact, I bet for any one of us, if you think about the last sin that still kind of haunts you, and think about the moment that you succumbed to it. And then rewind the tape just a little bit. And I can almost guarantee that if we're discerning, we will see the moment 
when we could have escaped. We'll recognize the moment when the Lord prompted us to leave the party or to walk out of the movie or to put away our cell phone or to get up and change our surroundings or to go read scripture or to go pray, whatever it was. But now's the time to leave. President Packer once said that we will never sin without first overruling a warning. That's an amazing statement that, that goes back to this concept. You'll never sin without first overruling a warning. You'll turn a blind eye to the escape hatch. You'll ignore the, the eject button lighting up beside you. And when we pass that point, that's when we're on our own. I'm going to go back to verse 16. They sought evil in their hearts. They kept entertaining these temptations. And so the Lord withdrew and withheld his spirit. The spirit can't be there in those situations. So now, yeah, we're on our own. Back to Isaac Morley. I, I, I asked you to do something. You thought it was sacrifice. Actually, it was salvation. Holding on to your farm would have put you in harm's way. That was the temptation you couldn't handle. And by walking away from it, you took the escape hatch. Well done, Brother Morley. Now he has different counsel for a different person in verse 21. I will not that my servant Frederick G. Williams, we'll see more of him later when he joins the first presidency, I would not that he should sell his farm. For I, the Lord, will to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, in the which I will not overthrow the wicked, that thereby I may save some. And there's a lot packed into that verse. The most obvious is simply the statement, Brother Williams, don't sell your farm. But Brother Morley, make sure you do sell yours. Now, is the Lord playing favorites here? Is he not being consistent in his commandments? Hardly. But he does see a difference in Brother Morley and Brother Williams. And for whatever reason, it's like, Brother Morley, the, that farm's going to spell your destruction. So get, get, get away from it. Meanwhile, Brother Williams, your farm could spell salvation. For the people that are still remaining here in Kirtland that are going to need some, some place to live on or some food to eat. In fact, for now, I'll even let you keep the possessive pronoun. <laughs> Don't sell his farm. And why? The Lord gives them some interesting counsel there in 21. I'm trying to retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland. At least for the next five years anyway. See, this is 1831. Five years later is 1836. What's the big thing that happens in Kirtland in 1836? The temple is dedicated, and saints can be endowed with power from on high. Once that's served its purpose, then in some ways the purpose of Kirtland is done. And by 1837, you see massive apostasy and the panic of 1837 and the fall of the safety, uh, Kirtland Safety Society Bank. Major problems in the sixth year. And by the seventh year after this revelation comes, all the, the saints have gotten out of, they've gotten out of Dodge. Okay? They are out of Kirtland. They've all gathered to Missouri. But like, like this, this verse says right here, for the next five years, Kirtland needs to remain a stronghold. And so you, Brother Williams, who are strong enough to actually hold on to your farm without the farm holding on to you, go ahead and keep it. You can be trusted with that. It's not going to be some, something bigger than you can handle. And it'll help the saints. And then this, the last phrase of 21 is reassurance to those saints back in Kirtland. Because like I talked about in the last couple of weeks, that there was a bunch that were kind of jumping the gun and short-circuiting the system and trying to arrive at Zion Place before they achieved Zion people. Remember all that? Well, the part of the challenge is there's been all these revelations about the signs of the times and the second coming and the destruction of the wicked and, and I got to get out of here. 
Back in section 45, when it describes Zion as the only place where people aren't at war with one another, this beautiful city of God, it's like, of course everybody wants to come. And so for those Kirtland saints that are told, no, stay here, I know it's temporary, but act on the land as for years, they're like, seriously? I don't know if I can buy that much time. Uh, how much time do we have before the second coming? Well, it's, objects in mirror are further than they appear, like we said last week. But here at least is the guarantee, I'm not going to overthrow the wicked within the next five years. Now don't get lazy and complacent on me, be anxiously engaged. But realize that you can afford to stay, spiritually speaking, here in Kirtland. And with the help of Bishop William, or Frederick G. Williams and his farm, you can afford to stay, temporally speaking, as well. I'm not going to overthrow the wicked uh, yet. And then that last phrase, that thereby I may save some. That is an amazing statement, too. It helps us see why God ever postpones the day when the wicked are overthrown. Remember this, this tension that God himself is trying to grapple with about, oh, the signs of the times on one hand, and yet no man knows the day nor the hour on the other? Or more close to this point, on the one hand, he's trying to hasten his work in his day. I mean, go speedily, we kept seeing the last couple of weeks. Or I'm trying to cut short my work in righteousness. Remember that verse from Matthew 24 and Joseph Smith Matthew? If those days are not shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. It's like, whoa, we got to pull the plug on the scoreboard, right? The other team has all the momentum. I've got to shorten things. Then why on earth is he prolonging our days? Well, this verse suggests one of the reasons. That thereby I may save some. See, there's some people who are procrastinating the day of their repentance. So if I unplug the scoreboard, they're still on the wrong side of the field. Yes, I'm trying to hasten my work in its time, but they're my work and my glory too. Yes, I'm trying to cut short the work in righteousness, but I'm also trying to extend and prolong their days so that they can change. You see how I'm trying to, ju uh, to balance justice, shorten it, and mercy, extend it? This is hard. But I'm trying to save people. And sometimes that just takes more time. So I'm not overthrowing the wicked yet. I believe that verse extends far beyond the, the first five years that it was in operation. Is God still not overthrowing the wicked because he still has some fence sitters to save? Please come. Our procrastination only makes our obedience that much more difficult. We're trying to overcome the world. Don't give the world more time to marshal its forces. Take advantage of God's compassion in inviting us to come to his side of the line. Now verse 22, after that day, after five years of a Kirtland stronghold, when the temple is completed and you've been endowed with this power, after that day, I the Lord will not hold any guilty that shall go with an open heart up to the land of Zion. For I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. Now what he says at the beginning there is to, to help you see, after the five years, if you want to go to Zion, go for it. I, I, I won't hold you guilty. Which lets you know that he is holding guilty those who've already jumped the gun. It's like, that. no, that was a no-no. You're putting Bishop Partridge in a, in a horrible place with too much of stewardship and not enough of consecration. Okay? The, the wisdom and order, you're, you're missing both. And there's some guilt there. But after the five years, if we've done this right, and all this 
this consecration that's taking place in Ohio among good saints like Isaac Morley that are selling their farm and good saints like Frederick G. Williams that are holding on to theirs. If this really is the stronghold it's meant to be, then Zion and Missouri can become a stronghold too. And then everybody can go. And the new Jerusalem will be on its way. But don't do all that yet. And I love, that, in fact, the end of verse 22 in some ways is one of the critical phrases of this chapter. In fact, of the whole book. In fact, of the whole work of God. For I, the Lord, require the hearts of the children of men. That's what I'm after. It's not about farms. That's why some keep and some give. It's, it's about the person themselves. It's about their heart. Did Isaac Morley, do you have the heart to give up your farm? Brother Williams, do you have the heart to hold on to yours and to stay here in Kirtland when you might be tempted to go jump the gun and rush down to, to Missouri as well? Why do I command some and revoke for others? Why do I send some missionaries this way and others that way? Why do I give commandments and sometimes just give will and, or permission or extend agency? Why do I do anything that I do? Balancing justice and mercy, uh, judgment and forgiveness, because I'm, I'm after your heart. I require the hearts of the children of men. Remember that little lesson about forgiveness. You ought to say, in your heart. Because it's not the lips I'm after, it's the heart. I mean, they draw near me with their lips, but their hearts were far from me. That's the Lord's complaint in the first vision. The wicked and the rebellious and the unbelieving, like Ezra Booth, that were complaining about Zion, what were they guilty of? Blindness, not of eye or of mind, but of heart. It's the mighty change of heart that the Lord is working on. It's our disposition. It's our character. It's who we are. It's the core of us. What a blessing that we have at the head of the church today, an expert on the heart. And I'll take his spiritual cardiology over his physical cardiology any day. He's really good at both. The Lord requires the heart. Keep an eye out for that in the remainder of this section. Now he's going to shift gears, or at least it seems like it, in verse 23 by talking about a topic that has never been raised in the Doctrine and Covenants up to this point. It's temporal, uh, but as we learned in section 29, everything's spiritual to God, and that's important to see here too. Because here, he, for the first time, he mentions the word tithing. Now we've seen consecration to this point. Interesting that consecration is introduced even before tithing does. And there'll be some explanation and clarification of tithing later on. But here in 23 he says, Behold, now it is called today, until the coming of the Son of Man. So no matter how many calendar days pass between now and then, it's all today. This is the only day you've got, right? This is the day of your salvation. And what kind of a day is it? Verily, it is a day of sacrifice. And to be more specific, one example of that sacrifice, a day for the tithing of my people. And then this famous promise, for he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. I mean, this whole thing's in the context of second coming, right? When are the wicked going to be overthrown? When will it happen? Well, the day until the coming of the Son of Man. Well, between now and then, pay your tithing. And if you do, then you won't be burned at his coming. Now, that last line, unfortunately, I've, I'll put it this way. I got an email from a student years ago whose dad was kind of on the fence between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, between obedience and disobedience. But the one foot that he kept squarely in the, in the kingdom of God was, was his tithe-paying one. 
And he always quoted that verse. Have you ever heard the phrase that tithing is fire insurance? Well, this is the verse that that idea grows out of. And what was interesting to me as I read this email is this student was really grappling with her dad. Uh, her dad's mentality anyway. Because as she described it, it was like, my dad doesn't care about so many commandments. And is just kind of floating his way through life, following the currents, right? On the river of destruction. But he pays his tithing. And he always quotes that line to say, hey, but as long as I give at the office, so to speak, as long as I sign the check, then I'm good. I won't be burned at Christ's coming. And this student was like, is that, is it really that easy? Has my dad found some kind of loophole that, that gives him, I don't know, kind of carte blanche permission to break other commandments as long as you, I mean, in some ways that turns tithing into paid indulgences, which was one of the, one of the, the things that Luther was trying to reform in the Protestant Reformation. You, you can't just buy your way out of guilt. Where's the, where's the justice in that? And this student of mine, wisely, was, was wondering about that. We ended up having an, an interesting conversation based on these verses. Because if you only take that last line, hey, I'm tithed, I pay it, I'm not going to be burned at his coming. Well, put that in context of what we just saw at the end of verse 22. What's the Lord after? What does he require? I don't care about your farms. I don't care about your stuff. I certainly don't care about your money. Remember we saw that last week? Whether they give a lot or a little, eh, it doesn't really matter. I just want them to, to get into the giving spirit because it's their heart that I'm after. It's their heart that I require. And where was the heart of this student's dad? It was more in Babylon than in Zion. I'm living in Babylon. I'm just kind of paying alimony to Zion. As long as I go over there on, on when I, after I get my paycheck, and give my 10% and have my passport stamped from Zion. Then I can rush back to Babylon where I spend most of my, my day to day. No, God will not be mocked. We saw that uh, last revelation as well. Well, notice verse 24 then. Because just like you read the end of 23 in the context of 22, I require your heart, we'll read it in the context of 24. For after today cometh the burning. Second coming of Christ, the earth cleansed by fire. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. So again, the, the reflection in the, in the side mirror is a lot further than it seems with your eye of faith. I mean, I'm glad you're feeling urgency and don't want to procrastinate the day of your repentance, but it's going to be a while. This is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say, tomorrow, whenever that tomorrow comes, all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble, and I will burn them up for I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any that remain in Babylon. Wherefore, if ye believe me, ye will labor while it is called today. Now take that whole passage, 22 through 25. And don't just pull out for your convenience the, the, the promise of fire insurance. Because what's the Lord after? Oh, not your 10%. But if you're, if you're a man, you've probably heard this. You probably agree with it. That the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I'm a believer in that. I'm always grateful for culinary treats. Uh, but based on this, there's something else that the Lord would, would say. And that's that the best way to a person's heart is through their pocketbook. Right? If your heart is set too much on the things of the world, then Satan can yank your heart away. 
by dangling the riches of the world before you. Well, on the other hand, if the Lord is trying to pull your heart in his direction, then by asking you to sacrifice, to consecrate, to tithe, then hopefully your heart is not set so much upon those things. You can walk away from them. You can sell the farm, Isaac Morley, and I can give my heart to God. And then back in, in the context of 24, who is it that gets burned? Whom does the fire destroy rather than purify? It's the wicked, it's the proud, it's the ones who remain in Babylon, that's 24, as opposed to those who believe in the Lord and labor, that's 25. Now, don't lose sight that we're talking about tithing here. But he stops mentioning tithing in 24, because now he's back to the real subject, which is the human heart. So now do you see the difference between ends and means? The ends wasn't to get your money. It wasn't to go fill the church's coffers and, and have, want to make sure everyone's a full tithe payer. No, what, it, it's, it's the heart. And that's the reason that tithing is one of the temple recommend questions. Not, have you contributed sufficiently to earn your way into the house of God? No, it's, where's your heart? Is your heart prepared to enter God's presence? Is that the offering you'll be able to give to him? Or is your heart still so wrapped up in the things of the world that you haven't been able to sort of free yourself of? That you don't, you, it's going to be given to him with all these strings attached. I'm trying to cut the strings so you can give God your heart. I'm trying to help you overcome your pride because that'll keep you from him. I'm trying to help you overcome your wickedness. In fact, I'm trying to get you out of Babylon. Notice the problem was not that they ever went to Babylon, because we've all been there, sadly. We all have the Babylonian stamp in our passport. It's the, the danger is when we shift from a stamp in the passport to a declaration of citizenship in Babylon. That's the problem. When we remain there, when we don't come to our senses and choose to repent and flee Babylon to come back to Zion, that's the problem. It's when we don't believe in God enough to trust Him, even with, with our temporal affairs. It's when we don't trust God enough to labor for Him and give Him our all in consecration, or even 10% of our all in tithing. I love this passage in terms of what it says about tithing, and not just this glib sort of fire insurance like I'm off the hook. No, <laughs> you approach tithing as the ends. And it wasn't. It was the means. And you missed the ends. Because even while you were paying your tithing, you remained proud and wicked. You remained in Babylon. You didn't believe. You didn't labor. You didn't give God your heart. Now on to verse 26. It is not meet that my servants Newell K. Whitney and Sidney Gilbert should sell their store and their possessions here, for this is not wisdom, until the residue of the church which remaineth in this place shall go up unto the land of Zion. So the Whitney store, and again, Sidney Gilbert was his partner, they're giving similar advice to Frederick G. Williams. The Lord's trying to, to balance things and to, and to split the people in the right way, and wisdom and order, and some in Kirtland and some in, in Independence. So some farms need to be sold, and some farms need to be held on to. And this store of yours, and I'll even, I'll even loan you back the possessive pronoun for a time. They shouldn't sell their store or their possessions. Because that's just not wisdom. 
that's running faster than the church has strength. People that stay here, the residue of the church that remains in this place, they're going to need a place to shop. They're going to need someone with temporal skills that will be able to help them. Like I said before, we're only a few chapters away from Newell K. Whitney being called as a second bishop. And why do we need two? Because the church is gathering to two different places. So hold on to the store for a while. Verse 27, Behold, it is said in my laws, or forbidden, to get in debt to thine enemies. But behold, it is not said at any time that the Lord should not take when he please, and pay as seemeth him good. So on the personal level, I want you guys to stay out of debt. But on the big picture level, the Lord never gets in debt to us. So whether I ask you to hold on to your possessions or to give them away, whether I'm asking you to consecrate all or tithe your 10%, you're not putting me in debt. Uh, I, I can take when I please. I can pay as seemeth me good. You're not going to call out my loan <laughs> and say, well, I consecrated, so I should be getting a, a, a bigger inheritance or a better stewardship. I want the land of Zion to look perfect now. That was Ezra Booth's problem. No, 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 don't. Ezra, seriously? You see a miracle and you think that faith comes from that and you join the church and, and come down to Zion expecting first dibs and you're going to call, you're going to call in my loan? No. The Lord can take when, it, when I please. I can pay as seemeth me good. Now you people down below, the little less trustworthy, be careful not to get into debt to your enemies. And that's the irony of debt. It's always to your enemy because debt is never your friend. Your creditor that, that is making money on, on the debt that you owe them. That, that's, not, that's not friendship that's, that's at work here. The interest that's accruing, that never sleeps, <laughs> that's, that's not friendly. Okay, So stay out of debt. Verse 29, Wherefore, as ye are agents, ye are on the Lord's errand, and whatever ye do according to the will of the Lord is the Lord's business, even these temporal affairs, those who are working as agents, like Sidney Gilbert, like Titus Billings, like Partridge and Whitney, and so on. It's all the Lord's work. Now verse 30, He hath set you to provide for the saints in these last days, that they may obtain an inheritance in the land of Zion. That's the ultimate spiritual purpose behind all these temporal affairs. 31, Behold, I the Lord declare unto you, and my words are sure and shall not fail, that they shall obtain it. But all things must come to pass in their time. You've got my word on it in verse 31. But please be patient in 32. I'm trying to balance justice and mercy through all of this. I'm trying, I promise to overthrow the wicked, but I'm also trying to, to save some. So some stay and some go and command and revoke and adjust on the fly and all these things that are taking place. It's going to work. Trust the process. I'm playing the long game. It will come to pass in its time. You've got my word for it. I am the word after all. And then 33 and 34, which again can, can join the last phrase of verse 22 as, as the core passages of, of all this period of church history. 33, wherefore be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Tithing is a small thing. Even consecration in some ways is a small thing. Believe me, you guys don't have that much to give compared to what I'm trying to offer you. 
keeping a store and some possessions or selling a farm or staying here to make a stronghold or going there to make uh, Zion blossom as the rose. In many ways, these are all small things. In fact, it's foundation laying. And if you've ever laid cement or worked on foundation, it can be it can be hard and sweaty and, and dirty and thankless and largely invisible kind of work. Foundation work typically isn't quick or easy or glamorous. Most of what you've done is buried beneath the ground. But it's absolutely essential that it's there because the whole superstructure rests upon the strength of that foundation. Stone by stone or shovelful by shovelful. So, don't get weary. All that you're doing is, is doing good and doing well. Just don't tire of it because it's a lot of work that goes into it. All the work that is going in now to, to strengthen and retrofit the Salt Lake Temple Foundation, it's taken a while and will yet take a while. But don't be weary in that. I mean, from our vantage point, nearly 200 years later, it's amazing just how far away the things in the side mirror really are. And so early on for the saints, how can, can we be forgiven perhaps a sigh of sympathy for those early saints? You have no idea how much more work you'll have to do. And that just how far away Zion really is. This is a marathon, not a sprint, so don't be weary in the well-doing. What you're doing is absolutely essential, and we honor you for it. Every small thing you do is what the great things are coming from. So a wonderful couple came to talk to my wife and I about a week ago, and just the struggles they're going through with their kids and, and the challenges they're facing. And, and we were trying to draw from our the things that we have seen and heard that are made known unto other disciples so they perish not, <laughs> to borrow the language from verse 19, trying to draw from our own well of experience and empathy of here's what we've been through, and here's some things that we've learned. But especially in just, the, the wife was doing most of the talking, and every once in a while I would look at the husband and just see in him fatigue. Whether that was compassion fatigue, or forgiveness fatigue, or just plain, I'm tired of just trying to to lift where I stand and lift where other people stand as well that, that aren't able to do as much of the heavy lifting. It was no pity party. And it was certainly no waving of the flag or, or just slumping down on the ground and saying, I'm not, I'm not going any further. But this verse did come to mind just as I, as I would glance at him every so often. I felt the same thing and, and wondered if the Lord glances down at me and sometimes just feels to encourage me as I felt to encourage this good brother to just don't give up. I know how tiring it can be, but don't be weary in well-doing. If Rome wasn't built in a day, and that's worldly, Zion is going to take a while. It's not going to be built in a day either. Even the city of Enoch was brought up to heaven in process of time, the book of Moses says. The pioneers did not teleport to the Salt Lake Valley some days they trudged. If they sang as they walked and walked and walked and walked and walked, that's a lot of walking. 
And I'm sure there were days where they did have to set up camp and stay a little longer than they'd originally planned. There were days they needed to rest the horses or the oxen or themselves. But they never gave up on the goal. They kept doing small things, step by step, just one foot in front of the other. So to any of you, dear friends, who are tired, please keep going. The Lord knows how wearying the way can be, for He is the way and the truth and the life. He wants to keep journeying with you. Abide with me. I know you want to keep walking. We walked with you all the way to Emmaus, and you look like you still have some journeying ahead. But will you stay with us? Tis eventide. I'm tired, even if you aren't. And the Lord, he chooses to stay. But he doesn't change the ultimate destination. Let's keep working and walking again tomorrow. And why? Verse 34. Because the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. Eat the good of the land. That's the feast of fat things that we talked about in section 58. We get to set the table and we get to eat there too. But we have to not just be obedient. We, we've been learning that, right? We were, became obedient objects. Now, next step is to become proactive agents. It's not enough to be obedient. You have to be willing and obedient. Isn't that the way he said it back in section 58? When, he, when they kind of are complaining, but, but hey, we kept the commandment. Well, yeah, but with slothfulness. But we received it. Well, yeah, but with a doubtful heart. We did it. Well, yeah, but not until I made you. Uh, it's not enough to be obedient. You've got to be willing. It's not enough to just give me your hands and, and salute. It's give me your heart and fully submit to, to let me work on you, to let me make you holy. I'm able if you're willing. You see what he's after? He said it at the end of 22, I require the hearts of the children of men. He says it again in 34, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. Why do you think that this becomes the, the, the site of so much struggle with the adversary pulling us in one direction and the Lord enticing us and inviting us in the other? No wonder sometimes when our heart has become hardened that the Lord has to, to break it crush it down, grind it down to powder, add living water, and reconstitute the clay, soft in his hands so that he can refashion us. If we're the clay in the master's hand, he's trying to remove from us the heart of stone and place within us instead a heart of flesh, a soft one. I just shared this with my in-person institute class last night. Uh, uh, relating to a different section of scripture. Uh, and perhaps I've shared it in these videos. I, I teach in so many different places, I can't remember where I've said things. And so please forgive me if you've heard this before. But my oldest son was born with uh, some kind of chest def deformity where there's like too much rib. Uh, and and when it, the ribs keep growing to the point that it either pushes out the sternum or it pushes it in. It's like it, it keeps growing and it just, there's got to be room for it to go somewhere. For those whose the ribs push the sternum inward, that can be dangerous because there's not enough room for all the, the organs inside. 
And so there is a brutal, brutal surgery where you break the sternum and the ribs and everything and just try to refashion things so it'll grow in more normally. My son's, thankfully, was the kind that goes out. But sad for him, the, the, the aesthetics of it, the look, it, was, it wasn't a danger to him. But he hated what he called his spike when he was little. Wouldn't take his shirt off at the beach or the swimming pool or anything. He just didn't want people to see. He'd kind of hunch over his shoulders and things. He just didn't want people to know about this, this spike in his chest. And he wanted, he wanted a surgery, and we wanted it fixed. But as we talked with specialists, they said, yeah, for when it's the out rather than the in, it's not worth the surgery. It's too brutal. But there is something that you can do if you can handle it. There is a, a chest brace that we make that has a pad on the front for the sternum and a pad on the back and then kind of these ratchets almost, these straps that connect the two that, that ratchet in to make as loose or as tight as you can handle. And if you can wear it for a year or so, 24-7 best case scenario, but at least at night and hopefully you can sleep with it on and it is pushing in your sternum and over the time by, by small things, proceed with that, which is great. Be patient. Don't be weary with this. But it can reshape the chest cavity. And my son was sold. Uh, he was not quite patient, <laughs> but he was zealous. And so I remember as we were driving home with this, with this chest brace, and he ratcheted that thing up so tight he could barely breathe. And I said, son, it has to be, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And that, that approach isn't sustainable. He's like, well, no, I want, it, I want it gone by tomorrow. And sure enough, he lasted about 15 minutes, and it hurt so much after that that he wouldn't wear the brace for like a month. I eventually said to him, son, can you just put it on tight enough that it stays in place with no pain, and then just give me one click? With each strap, just click ratchet it up just one so you feel a little bit of that pressure. And as much as you can handle. And then when that feels comfortable, then ratchet, click one more click, and until that feels comfortable, and then one more click, and click upon click, and line upon line, by small things, something great will come. And it did, like a year later. But I'm still amazed by the resilience and the perseverance of my son, because he bent bone he reshaped his, his chest. What's the Lord after? I want your heart. I want your mind. I want to change it. I'm going to bend bone. I'm going to reshape flesh. I'm going to affect a mighty change. And that's, that's no minor surgery. Will you submit to my care? Will you be willing and obedient and I'll remake you. I'll refashion you into someone more like me. I'm able to make you holy. I just require your heart and your mind. Meanwhile, verse 35, the rebellious shall be cut off out of the land of Zion and shall be sent away and shall not inherit the land. In fact, they cut themselves off. They send themselves away. They just wander. That says Rebuth for you. Verse 36, Verily I say that the rebellious are not of the blood of Ephraim, wherefore they shall be plucked out. We saw in 63 last week that the angels will come to pluck out the, the wicked from among the righteous. So until there is an entire separation of wheat and tares, sheep and goats. Here it's the blood of Ephraim. The rebellious have no part of that. 
Now Ephraim was the birthright tribe. And birthright in the Old Testament gets a double portion. Not because they're better, not because they deserve more, but because they're going to need more to make sure that everyone else in the family's needs are covered. Yeah, we're going to need the farm, Isaac Morley and, and Frederick G. Williams. We're going to need stores, uh, Sidney Gilbert and Mill K. Whitney. Because if you're the birthright child, you're not just responsible for yourself. Dad's gone. Now you're taking care of mom and every unmarried sister and anyone else in the family that, that needs help. You better hope your double portion is enough for it. But the blood of Ephraim, when you recognize that responsibility, then it's not a burden. It's a blessing. You want the entire family to be helped. So you don't cut yourself off from God or anyone else. Verse 37, Behold, I the Lord have made my church in these last days like unto a judge sitting on a hill or in a high place to judge the nations. We knew that the church or God's people was a city set on a hill that could not be hid. But it's also a judge sitting on that hill. I mean, the bench is usually higher, right, as people approach it. And why higher? It's not just so that we can look up to the judge. It's so that the, the judge can look out over all of us and see a better perspective, to see the big picture here. That's the judgment we're passing upon the nations and, 38, upon ourselves. It shall come to pass that the inhabitants of Zion shall judge all things pertaining to Zion. Why do you think I'm trying to educate your desires and help you work on your agency and, and give you more, more room to work within the decision-making process? If you're going to judge the nations, you better practice on yourself. I mean, learn to judge all things pertaining to Zion until you can get these things right. Verse 39, the liars and hypocrites shall be proved by them, and they who are not apostles and prophets shall be known. That's what we're up against. Dishonesty, hypocrisy, false prophets and apostles. Remember, the defining sign of the time is deception of the elect. And so no wonder the liars and the hypocrites and the false apostles and prophets are the ones we have to be aware of. Okay? We avoid that deception. See through it. Verse 40, even the bishop who is a judge and his counselors, if they are not faithful in their stewardships, shall be condemned and others shall be planted in their stead. Again, you're replaceable too. There's just God's justice speaking. Because what's his ultimate goal? Verse 41, for behold, I say unto you that Zion shall flourish. And the glory of the Lord shall be upon her, and she shall be an ensign unto the people, and there shall come unto her out of every nation under heaven. And the day shall come when the nations of the earth shall tremble because of her, and shall fear because of her terrible ones. The Lord hath spoken it. Amen. What a beautiful promise to end this revelation. What's all this justice and mercy aiming towards? Why does he need your heart? Because I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to establish Zion. I want it to flourish upon the hills and the mountains. I want the, the glory of the Lord to be upon her. This is the ensign. This is the standard. The, the banner is unfurled high on that mountaintop. Once they see that banner and are drawn to it, remember all nations shall flow uphill unto it out of every nation. Yes, there's one destination. There's the flag, the ensign. The one heart and the one mind. But it's out of every nation. There's the diversity. Everyone coming to this banner. And those who choose not to. Fearing and trembling because of her terrible ones. That goes back to what we saw about the, the church as this woman coming out of the wilderness. 
clear as the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible as an army with banners. We saw that again in section, that was section 5. We saw that again in section 45, that, that Zion is the only place that's not at war with their neighbors, but those who, who are still outside of its embrace and, and choose to remain so are fearful, scared of her terrible ones. Is it the standard that they're unwilling to keep? Is it the heart that they'd rather hold on to? Ah, what a, what a, a, a schism of soul pulled in both directions. I want to be safe with the people of God, but I don't want to have to live like them. I appreciate the mercy of God, but I don't want to hold on to his justice. Can I just keep my heart for myself? Or does the Lord really require it? Well, he does. And we'll see more of that going on. I actually want to skip ahead to section 66 and teach that first and then come back and finish with 65. Because 66 to me is just a fascinating example of someone that is just pulled between these poles himself. Uh, someone who's, oh, starts well and, and small things and building a foundation and he does some great good, but then has a really hard time enduring to the end and misses out on the glory of Zion. He never fully gives his heart over. His name was William McClellan. By the time this revelation comes on his behalf, he's been a member of the church for a little while, but he's just barely met Joseph Smith. He joined the church elsewhere, wants to go meet the prophet, so he comes and gathers in Kirtland, Ohio. He's, he meets Joseph at a conference and then ends up spending the next few days kind of traveling with Joseph. He's soon going to be called on a mission and go, go preach the gospel uh, and build the kingdom himself. But in the meantime, he's really wanted to know God's will for him. And he wants to get that will, that understanding, through the prophet. We saw tons of these in the, in the early sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, right? It's like as soon as somebody joined the church, they come to Joseph and say, what's the most important thing for me to do? Well, go cry repentance. Or what is the Lord's will for me? Well, here it is. And Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Knight Sr. And, and all the Whitmer brothers and, and Hiram and, and all these people. Well, here's William McClellan's turn. Now, unbeknownst to Joseph, William McClellan has already gone and prayed on his knees and asked the Lord, for guidance, for help, and specifically for answers to five questions. He had five specific questions in mind when he went to Joseph to ask for a revelation. Now, he doesn't tell Joseph what the questions are. In fact, he doesn't even tell him that he had questions. And we still, to this day, don't know specifically what the five questions were. You can kind of guess at some of them based on the answers that come in section 66. But what's amazing as far as William McClellan is concerned, as soon as this revelation from Joseph Smith comes, McClellan says, they answered my questions to my complete satisfaction. In fact, like I said, he has a hard time enduring to the end. This is 1831. By 1838, he's been excommunicated. He does great in Kirtland during the stronghold years. And then in 1837, when things start falling apart, he kind of falls apart spiritually too. He loses all faith in the leadership of the church. And by 1838, he's, he's out. He's left gone back to some, some wicked ways, and he's uh, excommunicated. But even after that, years and years later, he's no longer part of the church. He has no reason to back up Joseph Smith or, or the work of God. But he still holds on to section 66, and he tells people, I, in some ways, I went to Joseph wanting a revelation as, as testimony that he really was a prophet of God. And when those answers to my silent, unspoken questions came, I was convinced and I'm still convinced by this evidence, which I cannot refute, 
I didn't agree with all that Joseph decided later in life, and I no longer follow his, his teachings. But this specific revelation to me, I cannot refute the evidence that a prophet of God was delivering God's word to me that day. I know it. I, know, I knew it then. I know it now. It's a fascinating thing. Now to see specifically what the Lord was saying to him, start in verse 1. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto my servant, William E. McClellan, Blessed are you, inasmuch as you have turned away from your iniquities, and have received my truths, saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Savior of the world, even of as many as believe on my name. You see both justice and mercy in that verse? I bless you because you've turned away from your iniquities. There's my mercy. But you did have some iniquities to turn away from. There's my justice. Glad you did. And blessed art thou for doing so. I am your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. Because you needed redemption and salvation. There's justice and mercy, both. And the Lord is honoring McClellan's repentance and, and reaffirming his forgiveness. You've joined the church. You've been baptized. Sins have been remitted. Verse 2, Verily I say unto you, Blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant which he defines as this, even the fullness of my gospel, sent forth unto the children of men that they might have life and be made partakers of the glories which are to be revealed in the last days as it was written by the prophets and apostles in days of old. You see, we too often define the new and everlasting covenant of marriage in terms of marriage alone. But the everlasting covenant he defines here as the fullness of my gospel. Marriage is an essential part of that, but it's not the full umbrella. The big umbrella is the fullness of the gospel itself. And it's my everlasting covenant. It's always been there. I mean, the, the ancient prophets and apostles, those in days of old, wrote about this and talked about glories to be revealed. That's why it's a new and everlasting covenant. Always been there, but newly renewed in our day, newly restored as prophesied. Verse 3, Verily I say unto you, my servant William, that you are clean. Reiterating that. But not all. You're clean, there's my mercy. But not entirely clean, here's my justice, there's still some things to work on. So repent. Repent therefore of those things which are not pleasing in my sight, saith the Lord. For the Lord will show them unto you. I'll show them to you, my justice demands it. But I'll show them so you can repent of them. My mercy offers you that. In fact, do you remember that phrase that we saw back in section 64 about Edward Partridge? That he's sinned, but as soon as I've made those things known unto him, then he repented and he was forgiven. It was just sinning and ignorance. Once the ignorance was gone, then the sin was gone. He didn't want to have anything to do with it, right? Well, same thing here. End of 66.3, the Lord will show them unto you. That's actually the promise that is made in Ether 12.27. How does he turn weak things into strengths? by us coming unto Christ so he can show us our weakness and we can work on it together. That's how the verse begins. That if men will come unto me, I will show them their weakness. Hmm. The, the further away from God, the less we even recognize all the things that are getting in the way between us and him. But the closer I come, the more I start to recognize what's still keeping me from him. Be grateful for this fact that the Lord will show unto us our sins. I mean, he can't look upon them with the least degree of allowance. And he's trying to help us develop that same kind of, of, of low th sin threshold. A high pain threshold is something to that people brag about. We shouldn't be bragging about a high sin threshold. We should have zero tolerance. Justice demands it. Mercy allows us to get there, ultimately. 
as the Lord is working with us. Verse 4, And now verily I, the Lord, will show unto you what I will concerning you, or what is my will concerning you. I'm sure that was one of McClellan's five questions. He probably was wondering about his, his status in God's eyes. Remember, Joseph was when he was 17 and was praying, and that's the night that Moroni came. I imagine that's probably something on McClellan's mind. How am I doing? Has my forgive, repentance been acceptable? And another question that, again, was common to so many of the early saints, well, what do I do from here? What's your will concerning me? Well, here's the answer. Verse 5, Verily I say unto you that it is my will that you should proclaim my gospel from land to land and from city to city, yea, in those regions round about where it has not been proclaimed. Similar counsel to what he'd given the, the first crop of askers. I need people to build my kingdom. I need missionaries. I need proclaimers of the gospel. So go, land to land, city to city, everywhere you can. Verse 6, tarry not many days in this place. So I want you to go as quick as you can. Go not up unto the land of Zion as yet, but inasmuch as you can send, send. Otherwise, think not of thy property. Perhaps that was another question. That was a question on a lot of people's minds, after all. Do I stay here in Kirtland, or do I go down to Missouri? For him, in some ways, the answer was neither. I want you to go on a mission, okay? Don't st stick around long. But as far as Zion is concerned, no, you're not called to go there yet. Believe me, you have a lot of heart work to do in becoming Zion before you go out and build it. So let's become a Zion person before we go to the Zion place. But anything you can send there by way of consecration, don't think of it as yours. Don't think of your property. Get rid of the possessive pronoun and consecrate whatever you can and send it down to Zion to help, to help the people there. In the meantime, verse 7, go unto the eastern lands, bear testimony in every place unto every people, and in their synagogues, reasoning with the people. So his mission was eastward. Most others have been sent southwestward towards Zion. You, I need you to go east. And interesting, he'd say, go, go preach to the people in their synagogues. Now, he used that before, right? That you're going to be driven from city to city and from synagogue to synagogue. And they're like, well, we don't do synagogues. We're not Jewish. We're Christian. We do churches. I know. I know. And same thing here. But there's, to me, the symbolism behind a synagogue. I mean, synagogues are mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus taught there. But what's interesting in that period of Jewish history, especially after the temple is destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., with the loss of the temple, which had always been the, the main site of Jewish worship and ritual, with the loss of the temple, it led to the rise of the synagogue. And with the loss of sacrifice, since we don't have a temple to do the sacrifices at, what replaced sacrifice? Well, in much of Judaism, it was study. Less sacrifice, more study. Less temple, more synagogue. And the synagogue became a place of worship, but also a place of learning. And to me, I, I, I just think of that when I read verse 7 about McClellan going to the synagogues. It's like, go to their places of worship, that's normal, but also go to their places of learning. Teach them the gospel. I mean, here it says, reasoning with the people. I'm trying to get you to speak, I'm trying to speak to the mind and the heart. I do require the heart and a willing mind. I'm after both body parts, so address them. Help them feel the truth, that's the heart, but help them understand and, and reason with them. There's the head. Now verse 8, let my servant Samuel H. Smith go with you. So there's a companion for you. Forsake him not, and give him thine instructions. Samuel was younger than McClellan, so McClellan was the senior companion here, even though he'd been a member last time. And he that is faithful shall be made strong in every place. And I, the Lord, will go with you. 
So Samuel Smith is only going to be one of your companions. It, I intend this to be a, a trio rather than a duo. You and Samuel, yes, but I, not, I want to go with you too. If you'll have me, I'd love to accompany you along the journey. Verse 9, lay your hands upon the sick and they shall recover. That's often a question we go to the patriarch with, spoken or unspoken. What are my spiritual gifts? And so often that's a part of what's revealed to us. Maybe that was one of McClellan's questions too. What are my spiritual gifts? Well, there, that suggests the gift of healing. He continues, return not till I the Lord shall send you. So he had a pretty clear mission beginning, tarry not many days in this place, go as quick as you can, but not a very clear mission ending. Uh, don't return till I send you. Just stay out there in the eastern lands, preaching, going to the synagogues, reasoning with them. It's going to take a while. Not just because you're working on them, but because I'm working on you. And believe me, you're, you're a piece of work. Uh, we've got some things to do. Now, it's not all going to be easy. So the next line, be patient in affliction. You'll see plenty. But I'm going through it with you. And I'll offer you anything you need if you'll ask. That's how he finishes verse 9. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Great promise for missionaries. And then this counsel in verse 10, which is fascinating. Seek not to be cumbered. That's his first piece of advice there. Cumbered is the word that was used to describe Martha when Jesus was teaching and Mary was just sitting at his feet. Now, I'm not trying to compare Mary and Martha here. There are days where Martha uh, qualities are exactly what the Lord needs. And the Lord knew it and, and congratulated Martha for that on other occasions, I'm sure. But that day, she was cumbered about with much serving. And it was getting in the way of her really worshiping and sitting at the Savior's feet and learning. That was the needful thing for that moment. And whatever specifics the Lord had in mind here for William McClellan, it's just, it's the same word. Careful about being cumbered. Isaac Morley was cumbered with his farm. And it was going to keep him from giving good counsel. It was, going to, it was going to put him in harm's way as far as temptation being bigger than he could handle. I don't know what, what William McClellan was cumbered with, but don't seek that kind of encumberment. Now, cumbered is a word we don't use very much. I actually went back to the, the account in the New Testament about Martha and looked up every other translation there was to see what other words have people used for whatever the Greek word was. And cumbered is really common, but also were words like distracted, busy, worried, upset. Sounds a lot like mortal life, right? It's not just Martha that deals with those kinds of anxieties. What is it that distracts us from the work of God? What is it that makes us or keeps us too busy, kind of tied down to Babylonian concerns when Zion in the distance is waiting to, to, for our assistance? What do we worry about that we really shouldn't worry about at all? What are we upset over that we could leave behind us if we could just get past it and forgive? What is it in our heart or our mind that cumbers them and keeps us from offering them to God, a God who requires them of us? Well, I'll let you and the Holy Ghost discuss that one together. I've got my own list of things I need to work on. Now, the rest of verse 10 suggests that some of what cumbered William McClellan was his own sins. And we saw a few verses ago, you're, you're clean, William, but, but not all, not altogether clean. There's still some things that, that you and I need to work on. In verse 10, he says, forsake all unrighteousness. Now, that's still a little too general. Well, did you want specific? Okay. 
if you're, if you're able to hear it, I'm willing to go there. So verse 10 ends with, Commit not adultery, a temptation with which thou hast been troubled. Whew, there's a specific uh, revelation for you. And what's amazing about William McClellan, he didn't deny it, he didn't push back, he didn't fight. It, it was, again, to his complete satisfaction, it answered all of his questions. Perhaps one of which might have been, what are my blind spots? Well, this one wasn't so blind. You, you know you've been troubled with that one. So not a blind spot, but rather a, a potential pitfall. One you've slipped up and fallen into before. Don't commit adultery. Be chaste. Be virtuous. You've struggled with, with sins of immorality in the past. And sadly for William McClellan, he would again in the future. Now, based on his history, we know he was married in 1829. We know he was remarried in 1832 because his wife died young. I'm not 100% sure if she's still alive in 1831 when he receives this revelation. She may have already passed away, in which case adultery would be more, uh, technically, it would be fornication. Are you having sexual intimacy outside of marriage now that you are a widower? Or is this something you struggled with when your wife was, was sick and dying? I, I, I don't know all those gory details. I mean, she may have passed away even before he joined the church. Uh, but were there some immoral struggles as a widower? Uh, was there fornication? Was there adultery before she passed away? Whatever it was, there was immorality that, that William McClellan had grappled with. He'd been troubled with it in the past. In fact, there's even the, the possibility of maybe he didn't actually commit it. He's told not to commit it, but he's, he's also warned it's a temptation that you've been troubled with. Maybe it's that you haven't succumbed to it, but it's been there, kind of preying on you. And here's the, the escape hatch warning. Here is the, the eject lever lighting up. Be extra careful about this because I recognize the weakness that's in you. It's actually interesting because when he was excommunicated in 1838 and they asked him what, what happened, in the record it talks about him losing faith in the leadership of the church, but he also admitted that he quit praying and he quit keeping the commandments and that he indulged himself in lustful desires. So interesting that he went against this counsel that he knew was true when he first received it. But having lost faith in the source... He began to ignore the sermon and, and, and went against the exact warning that God had given him. Interesting how often that seems to be the, the chain of events or the order of the de-evolution of our faith. We start to second-guess prophets. We quit doing the things that tie us to God. Our prayer life becomes pretty weak. Then our obedience starts to unravel, and before we know it, we fall into sins that we knew were sinful, at least at some point in our life. So what's McClellan told? To, to, to avoid all of that future, if, he had, if he'd listened, verse 11, keep these sayings, for they are true and faithful. And thou shalt magnify thine office and push many people to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. So there, once again, the Lord reiterates the truthfulness of what he said. These sayings are true and faithful. Hold on to them. Magnify your office as a missionary. But I love the end. Push many people to Zion. That's the sense of the oxen horns again that we saw earlier. You're, if you're of the blood of Ephraim, after all, 
this ox as symbol, symbolic. Your, your mission, the burden on your back, is bringing the same salvation and cleansing and healing that has been given to you to everyone else. So go and push. Herd the rest of the people to Zion. And if push seems a little too uh, pushy, <laughs> if it seems compulsory rather than kind, well, realize that they are singing songs of everlasting joy. They are so grateful to be herded in the right direction. They just didn't know where to go. And McClellan and missionaries like him can, can show them the way. Then he ends the revelation. Verse 12, continue in these things even unto the end. I wonder if that's some foreshadowing of another weakness, since McClellan wouldn't continue in these things to the end. But if he had, you shall have a crown of eternal life at the right hand of my Father, who is full of grace and truth. Verily, thus saith the Lord your God, your Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen. These aren't Joseph's words. They're mine. He's not trying to butter you up with promises of an inheritance in Zion. I am inviting you to covenant with me and promising you a crown of eternal life at my right hand. Believe me, that far outweighs the value of whatever it is that you're allowing to cumber you, whether that's your possessions or your impurities. Let them all go. A far greater reward awaits you. Now, as I said, sadly, for himself and for the church that he could have been such a blessing in. I mean, he, he is one of the members of the first quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Such great potential in this man. But he struggled and he fell. And left behind, walked away from his testimony. Though not from all of it. And this story has a, a fascinating ending. He never returned to the church. But kind of like the three witnesses, he never denied his testimony of, specifically, the Book of Mormon. I mean, he never denied his testimony of Section 66 either, right? He knew, wow, this revelation, I'll stand behind it. I, I knew it came from God, as God said at its end, right? And even 10 years after his excommunication, he was still vouching for the reality of Section 66. But like 40 plus years after his excommunication, he was still vouching for the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Fascinating story. It's 1880, so he's an old man by now. Uh, there's a man living in Salt Lake City who's an anti-Mormon. Evidently doesn't like the neighborhood, okay? Uh, and he wants to write a book to shred the origin stories of Mormonism. Specifically, he wants to take down the Book of Mormon. It is the keystone of our religion, after all. If he can topple that one, then the whole superstructure falls. And he thinks, who can I ask about the beginnings? And he thought, ooh, William E. McClellan. He'll be a great one. He's got a bone to pick with Joseph Smith. He, he left the church and never returned to it, but he was, part of the, the, he was part of the laying of the foundation, early days. I mean, his revelation was canonized and all. So let me send him a letter and ask him to dig up some dirt about the Book of Mormon so I can do some mudslinging across the whole text. Well, he got a letter back from William McClellan, but it wasn't what, quite what he expected. I mean, part of it was. In it, uh, McClellan does uh, let, let him know why he doesn't want to be a part of Mormonism. And he says, I have no faith in, it, in Mormonism. But to the man's specific questions about the Book of Mormon, he says this. So I have no faith in Mormonism, but when a man goes at the Book of Mormon, he touches the apple of my eye. He fights against truth, against purity, against light, against the purest or one of the 
truest, purest books on earth. I have more confidence in the Book of Mormon than any book of the wide earth. And it is not because I don't know its contents, for I have probably read it through 20 times. I've read it carefully through within a year and made many notes on it. So amazing he was still studying the Book of Mormon 40 years after leaving the church. It must be that a man does not love purity when he finds fault with the Book of Mormon. It's like hint, hint, nudge, nudge. He's accusing this would-be author of something there. So he says to him, Fight the wrongs of LDSism as much as you please, but let that unique, that inimitable book alone. My advice to you, he says to him, is cease your opposition and strife against the book. And fight against wrongdoing and professors. It's like attack the people, attack the, the leaders, that's fine, but don't mess with the Book of Mormon. He says, for you might just as well fight against the Rocky Mountains as the book. And there this anti-Mormon was living at the base of them. Go try to move that mountain, because you're not going to make the Book of Mormon budge from its keystone position of its witness of Jesus Christ. And that's what William McClellan held to for the rest of his life. He had his issues, I'll admit, but I'll always respect him for that eternal testimony of the eternal truth found in the Book of Mormon. I do wish he would have held to the rest. He could have done great good building the kingdom. And with that thought, let's go back and finish this week's lesson with section 65. You see, section 65, short little revelation. We don't even really know much about what prompted it. It has to do with prayer. And there's some similarities here in this revelation to the Lord's Prayer that we saw back in Matthew. And so some have suggested, well, maybe Joseph was working on the JST and he saw that verse about the Lord's Prayer and wondered if there was any more to it. Well, there is more to it, but it had been like a month plus that Joseph was working on that section of the JST. So it probably wasn't that. But prayer always seemed to be on the prophet's mind. And the building of Zion definitely was on everybody's mind. And in section 65, those two realities come together in a beautiful revelation about praying for the building of Zion. Do we do that? We should. At least this revelation tells us so. In verse 1, we're told to hearken. And lo, a voice as of one sent down from on high, who is mighty and powerful, whose going forth is unto the ends of the earth, yea, whose voice is unto men, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Almost that whole verse is God clearing his throat, <laughs> calling our attention. Hearken, here comes this voice. It's coming down from on high. It's mighty, it's powerful. It's going forth to the ends of the earth. My voice is unto all men. It's kind of like the way section one begins. Here's the trumpet blasts. Here's attention, attention, all eyes on me, because I have a message for you. And it's not till the last line of that verse that here comes the actual message. And what is it? prepare ye. I mean, that was the, the thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants back in section 1. Prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come. For the, the day of the Lord is nigh. Second coming. It's urgent. We need to get ready. And what are we supposed to be doing? Preparing the way of the Lord and making his paths straight. This is the kind of highway construction that Isaiah prophesied for John the Baptist. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain made low, all the crooked places straight, and the rough places plain or smooth. That's, like I said, that's highway construction. We want the fastest way to connect two points is a straight line. So to make God's paths straight, 
We want him to be able to come as quickly as possible. We want to establish these strongholds and build up Zion so that the day of the Lord can come. We've done all the saving. We've done all the preparing. We've done all the gathering and building. So come and come quickly as you've promised. In verse 2, the keys of the kingdom of God are committed unto man on the earth. We saw that in section 64, Joseph given the keys of the mysteries. They're committed unto man on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. The stone was cut out without hands, but into mortal hands were placed the keys of the kingdom. And prophets and apostles are turning those keys so that the work of the Lord can go forth nobly, boldly, and independent. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right, that Daniel interprets. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, having a dream about Zion. He sees both in the dream. Zion is the stone. Oh, it starts little. It seems to start out of nothing. I mean, who cut that out? It just, it just started rolling, but it is picking up speed. And what's down in the valley below? This massive statue with a head of gold and then working on its way down through silver and bronze and, and iron and clay. And those are the kingdoms of the world. With you, Nebuchadnezzar, shining on top in all of your glory. But beware. In fact, repent. In fact, prepare. Because the stone that's rolling forth is about to demolish these statues. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's amazing to me that even though this, this dream seems to spell disaster for the future of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he fully accepts the reality of what Daniel interprets. He knows he's right, and yet he stays on the side of the statue instead of the side of the stone. I mean, if you think about a stone rolling forth, especially in the context of all these missionaries being sent forth to go proclaim the gospel and prepare the world, I mean, we're trying to make the path straight. So even though the stone was cut out without hands, it takes a lot of hands to keep it moving, to get it in the, moving in the right direction, to build it up. I sometimes thought about which side of the stone am I on? Am I on the front end and I'm going to be crushed by it because I'm cumbered about with all this Babylonian care? Or am I on the backside pushing it forward, trying to help it build up speed, building the kingdom of God every chance that I get. Well, that's what he's asking for. Verse 3, Yea, a voice crying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the supper of the Lamb. Make ready for the bridegroom. So we've shifted from, from verse 1, preparing the way of the Lord, making his paths straight. That's John the Baptist, uh, the first coming of Jesus to a different John, now John the Revelator, prophesying of the second coming of Jesus, the supper of the Lamb, the coming of the Bridegroom. And here we are setting the table for the Feast of Fat Things, going out, horns extended, to push the people home with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads, alerting the, the virgins, both foolish and wise, that it's time to come in for the Bridegroom comes. Are we engaged in this work? Anxiously so. Verse 4, it's coming, so pray for it. Pray unto the Lord. Call upon his holy name. Make known his wonderful works among the people. So that's raising our voice upward 
in prayer and outward in testimony. I'm asking God for help, but I'm also making known to other people all that God is doing to build the kingdom that they can now be a part of. Now, he gets more specific with that in verse 5. In verse 4, he just tells us to pray. In 5, he tells us how to pray and what to pray for. Remember in 3 Nephi when it says, It was given unto them what they should pray for? Well, here it is. Our Father is still whispering in our ear the things that we should say in our prayers. And it's a beautiful prayer. Verse 5, Call upon the Lord that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth. We want the rock to keep on rolling that the inhabitants thereof may receive it rather than being crushed by it and be prepared for the days to come in the which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven clothed in the brightness of his glory to meet the kingdom of God which is set up on the earth. Uh, there's a very specific thing God wants us to pray for and then work towards, right? Faith as evidenced by this prayer, it needs to be coupled with works as evidenced by our efforts to make the prayer answerable, to bring it about. And what are we bringing about? We're bringing about the kingdom of God upon the earth. We want his kingdom to go forth upon the earth. Why? So people will receive it and therefore it grows. So they're prepared. So when the son of man comes, he can bring heaven with him and meet the kingdom of God that's already set up for him on the earth. Now we're going to see more of this in verse six. But this actually reminds me, one of you amazing viewers with an eye to scripture that I'm impressed with sent me a message asking about a verse back in, was it six, section 63? And it uses the phrase of the Lord coming down in heaven. Now, for my whole life when I read that, I guess my brain just automatically shifts to what I thought it said, which was to come down from heaven. But it was come down in heaven. And this viewer asked, sent me a, a note asking, what, what do you make of that? And I was like, ooh, I've never thought of that. But again, your gift of questions hopefully will bring forth a gift of answers. And I started thinking about coming down in heaven. Here it is again in section 65. What does that mean? He's, yes, he's coming from heaven, but to come in it? To me, it suggested this idea of him bringing heaven with him. I mean, the scriptures talk about him with coming with the, with the apostles to help him judge. It talks of him coming with the numberless concourses of angels. This talks about him coming with the city of, of Enoch, right? I mean, this is Zion from above coming down to meet Zion from below, which is exactly what he's asking us to pray for in section 65. I, I mean, I love this. He's not just coming from heaven and leaving it behind. He's coming in heaven and bringing it with him. But for Zion from above to feel welcome on earth, it needs to find its, its earthly equivalent I mean, this is a marriage after all, right? If the bridegroom is coming, is the bride prepared to meet him? Is she ready for the wedding feast? I hope so. It's her wedding after all. And so how does Joseph respond to this? I love verse 6 because it's an immediate response to what God asked him to do in 4 and 5. We're supposed to be preparing the way, make his path straight. I'm trying, I'm trying. We're supposed to be preparing the way of the Lord, the supper and making ready for the bridegroom. I'm trying, I'm trying, I promise. Well, pray for it. Pray for these things to happen. And verse 6, wherefore, Joseph's like, okay, you want me to pray? Well, I'm doing it right now. Arms folded, eyes closed, head bowed. Wherefore, here comes the prayer. And it's a masterpiece. We may not use the exact same language, but I hope that, that our heart 
the heart that God requires of us, the one he's trying to change within us, I hope our heart with whatever language can express these kinds of desires and their second coming desires. Wherefore, Joseph prays, may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, that thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven so on earth, that thine enemies may be subdued, for thine is the honor, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. You hear in the end of that the echo of the Lord's Prayer? I mean, you could hear it literally. I mean, Andrea Bocelli has an incredible ver musical version of the Lord's Prayer that, that, oh, that raises the voice heavenward, offering God honor and power and glory forever. But do you see specifically what Joseph's asking for? Exactly what the Lord asked him to ask him for. May the kingdom of God on earth go forth so that the kingdom of heaven from above may come. These are the two Zions. This is the earthly Jerusalem making way for the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the bride getting ready for the bridegroom. This is Zion from below preparing for Zion from above or Zion built so that Zion can be brought. Remember the rainbow. It wasn't just to reassure uh, the, the posterity of Noah that the earth wouldn't be flooded again. Originally, the, the rainbow precedes Noah as a sign. And it was a sign of the covenant made with Enoch that just as Zion was caught up to heaven, so someday would it return. That's what rainbows do, right? They connect heaven and earth. And Zion is supposed to be that rainbow. It is supposed to be evidence of the covenant God has made with his children to bind us together so that heaven can come with Christ and find heaven set up here on earth. That needs to be the subject of our prayers and the object of our works. Now with that in mind, can I conclude today with one of my favorite hymns, that puts to music, I mean, there's, there's something about, uh, about music. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. Well, here the Lord is, is giving them a prayer to offer, which someone, in a manner of speaking, took the prayer and put it into poetry. And then the poetry was added with music just to infuse life into it. And this prayer of the righteous became a literal song unto the Lord. And guess who wrote it? Edward Partridge. Bishop Partridge, he who was tasked primarily with the temporal establishment of Zion, even more so than Joseph originally, because Joseph needs to go back to Kirtland and help build the temple. But Bishop Partridge, you have to take this wilderness and make it blossom as the rose. You are called to Zion to build this place and prepare this people for the coming of Christ. That's so fitting to me that Edward Partridge would write a hymn that was included in Emma's original hymn book. I'm grateful it's still in ours. Now it's number 41. It's called, Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise. Can you picture a presiding bishop? Can you picture someone overwhelmed with the task at hand 
pleading with God as we're all asked to plead. God, may thy kingdom go forth so thy kingdom can come. May Zion in her beauty rise. We're trying to build the mountain of the Lord so all nations can flow unto it. And I, I'm trying to see with the eye of faith instead of the eye of flesh. I'm trying to look at this with the eternal perspective and not for the present time. But there is so much work to do and we need your help. So here is my prayer to you, which we sing. Let Zion in her beauty rise. Her light begins to shine. Ere long her king will rend the skies, majestic and divine. The gospel spreading through the land, a people to prepare to meet the Lord and Enoch's band triumphant in the air. Ye heralds, sound the golden trump to earth's remotest bound. Go spread the news from pole to pole in all the nations round that Jesus in the clouds above with hosts of angels too will soon appear, his saints to save, his enemies subdue. That glorious rest will then commence which prophets did foretell when saints will reign with Christ on earth and in his presence dwell a thousand years, O oh, glorious day. Dear Lord, prepare my heart to stand with thee on Zion's mount and never more to part. That is the prayer of the righteous, ascending to God. That is us pleading with him that the kingdom of God may go forth so the kingdom of heaven may come. A thousand years, O oh, glorious day, more glorious than we can possibly imagine. But what do we need to be doing? We need to prepare the world for it. And better yet, we need to plead with the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive it. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our hearts are prone to wander, as that other beautiful hymn I'm referring to suggests. It's why the Lord requires that we give it to him, even if it's broken, to offer him our heart and all that goes along with it so that someday we can stand on Zion's mount and nevermore depart.